Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, January 16, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, fully recuperated Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. A little bit different feel today. Not an official holiday. Back to the grind. Business as usual. Day after the Iowa caucus. We've got a lot to talk about in regards um, to that. But in typical fashion, over the middle of January, it stands to talk football, right? Sure. Over the yeah. NFL that they paid. It's playoff time. I'll tell you this. If I were the, if I were, you ready, Josh? If I were dictator, your word, if I were dictator of the NFL, I would force some of these cities to build dome stadiums. I mean, I understand the elements are part of it. I get that. But you're inviting trouble, middle of January, playoff game in Buffalo, playoff game in Green Bay, playoff game in Cleveland, playoff game in Cincinnati. You get some of this late effects snow, and it's That's just part of it, dude. But I understand it's part of it. And and I can't believe let, you would me, advocate for, for Lambeau. Me, it, I mean, it, as, well, as much as you think of Lambeau, you would say that. But is the game played in a, in a – are we trying to find who has the most athletic and best football team? And the weather becomes too much of a factor in, in that sort of situation. Look, I, I get it. I mean, there, there's nostalgia. There's there's romance of the game at Lambeau. At, I mean, at some of these cold weathers, Buffalo would be another unique example of lakefront snow. I just think when you got 24 inches of snow, it's a um, it's just a different animal. And I understand they cleared the playing field, and you know, but it's still three degrees. It's 20 below zero with the wind chill. You've got a team from San Francisco. Um, the reason I felt the Cowboys would beat the Packers, they weren't playing in Lambeau. The reason I think the Packers will leave to the lose to the 49ers um, this coming Saturday night is they're not playing in Lambeau. And I understand weather is a part of it. And you play the season to get home field advantage. And everybody knows that you don't want to go to Buffalo and play in the middle of January. You don't want to go to Green Bay and play in the middle of January. I just think football has become less football and more entertainment. And the entertainment component is kind of the driver in all this. And I'm a lot more entertained when it's 70 and not snowing than 20 below zero. And I actually, I mean, I don't know if you saw this yesterday, but the Buffalo Bills-Pittsburgh Steeler game was basically general admission. Four seats to the concert. I mean, that, that, you know, we, we, well, they couldn't find seats. I mean, you know, the I mean, they, Some they of the paid, seats were piled under well, snow. Under snow. And, and people, you know, yeah, you probably don't need to bring people. So we probably don't need to sell beer by the by the big cans to people with shovels in their hands, but they let you bring your snow shovel to the game. <laughs> I mean, I understand it. There is a, a certain entrancement about that experience in Buffalo and Green Bay. I mean, when I think of cold weather and weather affected or impacted stadiums, I think of Buffalo and Green Bay. I mean, that's the two places that I think about. Because once again, Rev, it's not just cold in Green Bay and Buffalo. You can get ass deep in snow in a hurry. I mean, in a big hurry in those two places. And I just, I don't know. If I were um, if I were king of, of a professional football, I would strongly encourage the owners of those respect, respected franchises to figure out a way to work with their government. You know, I don't know, the NFL and build some sort. Doesn't have to be a dome stadium. Put a roof on it. I mean, there's got to be some way to. I mean, all these engineering marvels that we see. I mean, there's a way to put a retractable or not roof on some of these uh, on some of these stadiums, and it would change the dynamic of Lambeau. 
with the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field. I mean, I've heard that yeah, since I was would, a little boy. We say the, the heated tundra. Yeah. They, well, I mean, they've got it heated now. <laughs> I know. The, the, the but it really be heat. I mean, the Players Union 20 years ago yeah. said, you know, in, in certain conditions, I worry about our athletes and, and the safety. And they went down and buried some of these hot water radiators. It's almost like a radiator. It's, uh, it's got hot water or warm water running under the field, melts the ice. Uh, I mean, you got a wet field, but you don't have a an icy, you know, slick feel. And uh, anyway, uh, I want to I want to stay in football for one second. One of the issues that we've talked extensively about over the air has been NIL and transfer portal. Um, leave the NFL alone. Let let those um let those major metropolitan areas figure it out the best they know how. Kind of interesting. Buffalo and Green Bay aren't major metropolitan areas. I mean, they're bigger in Florence and Sumter and Orangeburg. But they aren't major metropolitan areas. Um, college football is dealing with a reorienting. I mean, it's we're, we're completely reorienting the game of college football. Um, the player, I think I'm. I think this is a pretty accurate way to say it. The player, Josh, went from having zero leverage. Do as you say. Here's the scholarship. Here's a tutor. Here's a special lunchroom. Um, you know, we charter planes to fly to games. That's your pay. I mean, you get a college education one of these days and basket weaving or whatever, whatever. Um, concrete monitoring. What does that mean? Just watch the concrete. I mean, just watch it. Um, and you get a stopping. But anyway, the player went from having no leverage to pretty much all of the leverage. We're talking about NFL. There are restrictions on free agencies. I mean, that there are salary caps. There's a there's a methodology to managing the affairs of, you know, how do we create some sense of parity in a game? Um, I mean, there's kind of two theories in football, college, I mean, the pro in particular, chase and dominate and parity. And the NFL is sold it's sold to parity. They'd rather have parity than chase and dominate. Chase and dominate means you got three or four dominant teams. They've got distinct advantages, uh, major media markets, uh, television rights a little bit differently, but they got revenue sharing in the end. Anyway, They've they they've they've been convinced that parity's the better model long term than chase and dominate. Um, college football has, for years and years and years and years, had a model where the student athlete, the the, the college football player in this case, had no leverage. NIL lawsuit hits, they get all the leverage, too much leverage. I've argued that maybe just maybe we can find a place of equilibrium. In the process of reorienting college football, some of the universities in some states went to the General Assembly and said, we don't particularly like the way the NCAA's guidance is on NIL. Some of the um, some of the name, image, and likeness, some of the uh, transfer portal, who can be involved in the negotiations, who has to be left out of the negotiations. The NCAA is a sanctioning body, but you guys are the lawmakers, and we are a public university in Missouri. We're a public university in Florida. We're a public university in Mississippi. I use those three states as an example because they have been the most progressive. But I mean, they've not been reactive. They've been very proactive in addressing what they want their NIL to look like. Ole Miss and Missouri, and probably Florida State, all three of those teams are more likely than not to be in the college football playoff next year. And, and a lot of that can be attributed to their athletics department going to the General Assembly and passing legislation that creates clarity in proactively allowing them to do things in Missouri, Mississippi, and Florida that a lot of other states can't do because they don't have 
institutional clarity, and they're nervous about getting in, in trouble or not. So today, the General Assembly, our good honorable friends, Jay Jordan, Philip Lowe, Mike Rickenbaugh, they will make their way to Columbia. Somebody this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe this afternoon, will read across the desk a bill. That means introduce a bill. Uh, the bill will be an NIL legislation bill. Um, Clemson and South Carolina have worked together uh, on this bill. The university's athletic departments have worked on this bill. I've got a big problem with the bill because they've not consulted the collectives as much on the front end as I think they should have. But we're beginning in South Carolina. Today will be the day that the General Assembly begins kicking the can. I mean, it'll get assigned to a committee. Uh, you know, for what purpose? Well, I mean, somebody will read the bill. The reading clerk in the House, I think it's a House bill. The reading clerk in the House will read the bill today. That introduces the bill. The presiding officer of the House, which more than likely will be Merle, uh, Speaker Smith will be presiding. He'll assign that bill to a certain committee, and the sausage-making begins. And at the end of the process, the state of South Carolina will have an NIL guidance bill. It will have... Um, legal teeth. I mean, it will be binding. It will be, you know, if the NCAA says, well, you can't do this. Well, yes, we can. Our General Assembly has said we can. I have always been a proponent and an advocate. I'm hearing through the grapevine. Well, let me say, I'm not hearing this from the grapevine. I'm hearing this from reliable sources that the bill will include an involvement of the university, its booster club, and the athletics department. I'm not hearing that television revenue is going to be a part of this. And my concern is if someone who doesn't like college football, let's say um, Coastal, Clemson, and South Carolina will be the most affected or impacted by this bill, if somebody just doesn't like college football, a lot of folks don't like football. Some do, but a lot don't. Um, you could argue that the interpretation of the bill puts taxpayer dollars funding athletic programs in a way that taxpayers don't want to fund. And I think the ambiguity involved in, in kind of commingling some of those funds creates more trouble than it's worth. And the cleanest way to do it is to support the collectives via television revenue. Rev, you can't argue that the television revenue is not a byproduct of playing athletics. I mean, we can argue about the booster club. We can argue about the university funding. We can argue about Jay, Phillip, and Mike and how much money they give Carolina and Clemson and where that money goes. I mean, it gets to be funny money at some point in time. It's not this dollar. You don't put a dollar in the stream, put a stripe on it, and at the other end of the stream, well, I tracked that dollar. That's exactly where it's supposed to go. I mean, it gets real squishy in there, but there is no way. There is no way anybody could argue that television revenue is not, once again, a byproduct of kids playing college football, college basketball, college baseball, um, women's basketball, whatever, whatever the athletic endeavor is. But the SEC says to the University of South Carolina, hey, your check for $81 million is in the mail. It's not for winning a spelling bee. It's not for winning a, uh, a nuclear physicist experiment. It's not, um, you know, beating Stanford in a, in a I don't know, some, uh, some computer technology course at the Darlamore School of Business. Um, it's none of that. <laughs> They're sending the money because we play sports. People consume sports. Advertisers advertise on the SEC and ACC network and Disney and CBS and NBC. And uh, and I just think that's the cleanest, neatest way uh, for that to happen. We'll see where it ends up. But today the process will begin. 
someone will read a bill across the desk in the house and it'll get assigned to a committee. Now it, it'll be amended, but there's no doubt about it. The sausage will begin to be made. Um, where it ends up, how it ends up, I, I've got no idea. Um, but I believe that the more we allow the television revenue, because here's the deal, and I think this is where EPTA members and Gamecock Club members agree. I mean, they don't agree on much, but here's where I think the Gamecock Club and EPTA agree. I'm funding everything else. You pay the players. I mean, if we live in this world now where college football players are going to be paid and I'm funding everything, you come to see me about we need money for a baseball stadium. We need money for a women's track. We need money for a, uh, an aquatic center. We need money for this. We need money for a jet to fly coaches around to recruit players. And I fund all of that as a donor. You guys can figure out a way to pay the players. I could easily argue that, let's say, 10% of all television revenue goes to the university in the name of paying the player. You don't have to use all of it. I mean, you could be skimpy and, and suck at football, or you can pay, you know, have a big payroll and, um, and do well in college football. But, um, but I hope we end up in a place where the television revenue is a big part of helping the donor. Because right now, I mean, they're, they're hey, Mr. Tiger, hey, Mr. Gamecock, hey, Miss Tiger, hey, Miss Gamecock, remember that money you gave you last year? We appreciate it, but we need more now because Georgia's signing better linebackers and Tennessee's fine signing better linebackers and Florida State's got, got better football players. And I think the donor is tapping out. I mean, I think the donor looks at the university and says, look, I've done all I'm doing. I mean, you guys go figure it out from here. Um, and, I, and I'd like to see maybe the, the collectives at Clemson and Carolina raise X number of dollars annually. The television revenue matches that. In other words, if, if the Gamecock Collective raises $4 million and the Ipte, excuse me, the, the Clemson Collective raises $4 million, Clemson takes $4 million of the ACC money, they match that $4 million. Uh, the Gamecocks take $4 million of the SEC money, they match that $4 million, and both teams have $8 million to go out and buy a football team. Because in essence, that's what we're doing. I mean, we're not playing in Buffalo in the snow. We're not playing in Green Bay in the snow. But we're buying football players. They're just asking the donors to pay for the players. And I think the university should be responsible for funding the collective. The collective has to stay in place. That's the insulator. I mean, that, that creates a layer of insulation so the student athlete is not directly employed by the university. If you do that, you're going to have collective bargaining and overtime pay and health insurance and all other sorts of complications to go along with employer-employee relationships. 843 661 0937 back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. So I'm just a regular guy, and we talk about football a lot. Before we get to it, there's obviously a primary news we'll get to here in just a few minutes, but I want to I want to make uh, a point here because we talk about football, and I'm just a, a regular guy that, you know, our family does invest in season tickets, parking, and all that for all of the Gamecock games. And, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's not easy to do because it's a lot of money just to do that. Um, I've paid attention to the NILs. I've paid attention to what they're saying. I especially a uh, Garnet Trust. I've seen uh, I've seen what they've had to say, and they are collecting money we, we, from donors. We do a monthly podcast with Garnet Trust. Yep. I mean, we have a Garnet Trust podcast that we have a great sponsor, Mickey Fans here, local business that helps us out with the Garnet Trust podcast once a month. But in in the and I appreciate 
those guys and what they do, and they explain it very well, and it makes a lot of sense, but it, it makes you feel as a donor and as somebody who's been investing in your season tickets and your experience and supporting the university, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that if you don't step up and make these donations, step up more than you already are, the team sucks and it's your fault because we have to have this money. And they're telling the truth. I know they are under the current construct. I mean, you don't like it. I don't like it, but it's where we are right now, and it needs to be rectified. And that's why I've been a big advocate for an NIL bill, a a legislation. Now, now, do do I trust the universities to get it right? Probably not. Um, I mean, this sounds real arrogant. I mean, I've lived it for a year. You know that. I mean, I've I've consulted and talked and tried to better understand. Um, I mean, you're not going to get a bill that's good for the Gamecocks, not good for the Tigers. I mean, the Shauna Clears matter. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they, they've done what they've done with their athletic programs are phenomenal. I mean, it really and truly is. What Coastal has done in the period of time they've accomplished what, um, I mean, it's, they, they're like East Carolina or Central Florida. I mean, they're not Florida State. They're not Florida. They aren't um, North Carolina or NC State. But they are beginning. I mean, they, their sin has been a marvel to watch. And I congratulate Coastal. I mean, I really and truly congratulate Coastal. As a Gamecock fan, I think one of the best things you could do, I mean, I don't know how much Beamer would want to do this. It'd be a little bit careless and reckless to do it. But I think the Gamecocks or Tigers, or maybe both over a period of time, should go to Conway and play Coastal in football. Frank Martin went to Conway, I think, and played him in basketball. But, I mean, you're not going to do it every year. And they owe you three for every one. I mean, if you go to Conway and play a game, they should go to Columbia and play three or four or Clemson and play three or four. I just think the uniqueness of the arrangement. We are a, but it's hard to say we're a two-university state now. Maybe we're a two-and-a-half. I mean, you got Furman and Walford and Citadel, and those are a little more pedigreed. And, and, you know, I mean, they're a little more academically, um, I don't want to, they're not public universities. There's a better way and a more proper and accurate way to say it. They're not public universities, but the the universities have their pots of money. And the athletic departments has, I mean, they have their pots of money. I'm saying create a, a separate pot of money that the university somewhat funds. It 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 you know, the collectives are in place. They're legal, they're binding. I mean they're, they're they've been lawfully constructed both at South Carolina and and Clemson. They pass the smell test. But I think if you start moving money around, university funds, you're asking for a lawsuit, Rev. You're asking for, well, I mean, if the university's paying the kid to play football, he's an employee of the athletic departments, so where's his health insurance? Where's his overtime pay? Where's his pension? Where's his right to collective bargaining? I I just think you open up Pandora's box if you go down that road. As As my dad would always say, or my grandfather would say, you think you got more hell on your hands now? I mean, you start that, and then you'll find out exactly what the problem. So, so you've got this these two pots of money. You've got ACC television revenue. You've got SCC television revenue. Nobody, you can hate football, love football, watch every game on television, never watch a game on television. But the only reason Clemson and South Carolina receive that money is they participate in an athletic conference. And their teams and programs share in the benefit of being in those two um, leagues. Now, I'll, I'll level with you. I think that's advantageous for the Gamecocks because that pot of money is a lot bigger. I mean, the SEC money after Texas and Oklahoma come in is significantly bigger than the Clemson pot of money. So maybe I'm looking for a little edge here. Imagine that. You know, in a rivalry, <laughs> you're looking for 
or somewhat of an edge, but I think it's the clearest way to do it. And you're not ordering, you're not ordering the athletics department to invest 10% of the revenue to the collective. You're giving them discretion. And then the, the Gamecock and Tiger, you know, um, nation, I mean, they'll, they'll decide where, where do you want to most invest those funds? Um, do you want to build a soccer field or do you want to increase your NIL budget by $5 million? I mean, that, that, that'll be a decision that Ipte and Clemson and their collective make. That'll be a decision USC, the Gamecocks, and its collective makes. Uh, I'm not in the room when they make those decisions. I just think the athletic, the athletic money within the university can get a bit squishy, and, and you're inviting a lawsuit. And somebody's going to say, hey, my son's playing football and getting paid by the University of South Carolina. No, he's not. He's getting paid by a collective. Well, I mean, he say that, but they're moving money around. And I think they're doing it to stop having to give my kid a pension and health care and retirement and, you know, time off and bonus pay. And did he work more than 40 hours this week? Well, if he did, he deserves time. You see where I'm headed. I mean, it gets real complicated if you allow um, that to happen. But nothing's going to pass at the state house unless the Gamecock and Tiger legislators give it the thumbs up. I mean, that's just the way that world works. I think USC's got a few more lawmakers in their corner and Clemson's a bigger university, uh, a bigger alumni, more graduates, stands to reason, got a law school, got some, now, this would be kind of interesting. You've got some lawyers in the state house who went to undergraduate school at Clemson and got a law degree from Carolina. I mean, the majority of those are still Clemson. I mean, they love the Tigers. I've got several friends in my world that went to Clemson undergraduate, went to USC law. If you said, hey, you're a Gamecock and a Tiger, they'll tell you in a minute, no, I'm a Tiger. I mean, I went to USC Law because that's kind of the only show in town. And and, and, a, and a pretty good show. I mean, there, no doubt about it. But anyway, um, we'll watch it up close and personal. I'll try to get a report from Jay Phillip and Mike Friday. I'll give them a little fair warning. Hey, this question is coming your way because we do talk a lot of college football here, and this is a place politics and athletics uh, seems to converge. Politics is the only place in America that 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4. But it really and truly is. The line of the night is Nikki Haley. I mean, I didn't listen to much of Trump. I went to bed, but I woke up this morning. I went on Twitter. I went to National Review. went to Real Clear Politics. went to the Wall Street Journal. went to MSNBC. See, they wanted to know what, uh, you know, kind of, kind of the sentiment of the media is. I mean, I knew what it would be, but I wanted to read it for myself anyway. But Nikki Haley finished third in the Iowa caucus and said it's a two-person race. <laughs> okay. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> Help me with that, Nikki. Um, it, she finishes third, but it's a two-person race. And she said that after the results came in? Correct. Hmm. <laughs> but, I mean, we know what she's implying, that it's off to New Hampshire, and DeSantis put all of his eggs in, in the Iowa basket. I'm putting all my eggs in the New Hampshire basket. She'll, she'll perform better than DeSantis in, in, um, in New Hampshire. But DeSantis has a decision to make. I mean, does he stay in or not? There's nowhere to go now. I mean, we, we, we speculated, we, um, we hypothesized, we theorized, but now we've got hard data, and there's nowhere for DeSantis to go here. I mean, there's just nowhere for him to go. I think he was at about 20 or 21%. I mean, that's where I expected him to be. I don't want to pat ourselves on the back here at Wake Up Carolina, but we felt that Trump would be in the vicinity of 50%. Um, I mean, I told Rev, any, any turnout number above 150, I felt very confident that Trump would be above 50%. 
a turnout number below 50, I was less confident. We had significantly less than 150, and Trump still exceeded 50%. He was at 51.1% with only about 112,000 uh, people casting ballots or caucusing in the uh, in the Iowa caucus. That, that That's positive for Trump, 51% with a small, with a less than stellar turnout. I mean, in all honesty, here's how that, you ready? Trump won, the weather came in second, DeSantis came in third, and Haley came in fourth. I mean, the weather came in second. I mean, despite what the Iowans said about how tough they are and how committed they are, how enthusiastic they are, I mean, the all-time highs, 187, this was one of the um, the less turnouts that they've had in the Iowa caucus. Somewhere between 110 and 120,000 people participated. Trump still got over 50% of the vote. That's a sledgehammer. I mean, that's a big old orange-skinned, blonde-haired sledgehammer <laughs> taking it to the <laughs> GOP presidential field. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. So let's, let's kind of evaluate and analysis, or give an analysis of what happened last night. I mean, I went back and looked at my notes yesterday just so I don't misspeak. I mean, Iowa, uh, you know, had 100,000 new signees. I mean, people who said, I want to be a part of the caucus that had never, ever been a part of the caucus. I was corrected yesterday about Dole and Buchanan. That was in 96. Um, they did. Dole and Buchanan were in 96. Dole and Pat Robertson were in 88. That's the year that um, that Dole won by 12 percentage points, which was the biggest margin and still is in um, in Iowa. So that was obliterated. I mean, it was a 30-point win. I think DeSantis was at about 21%, Trump north of 50%. But I went back and looked, 150,000 over under, 170, 187,000 is the largest ever turnout. Um, the election is not administered by the State Election Commission, but rather the um, the Iowa GOP. Uh, you know, you write names, <laughs> you scribble names. I mean, it, it's kind of the most old. You're talking about Green Bay being old-fashioned. I mean, it's kind of the most old-fashioned way imaginable um, to vote. I had some notes here. Um, Robert and I talked a little bit Sunday and, again, yesterday morning. Uh, I, I got to give show. Robert and Trafalgar credit because they pretty much nailed it. With they those nailed it. We, we, we read his last poll yesterday morning, and it was just about spot on. 51.3 is where he had Trump. Now, he had modeled a turnout of about 150,000. He told me that in a text, and um, we felt, Robert and I felt, and I think I said yesterday before I talked to Robert, that the likelihood of Trump getting over 50% decreased as the number of participants went down. In other words, 150,000. If there were 150,000 people who caucused, I felt very comfortable that Trump would get 50% of the vote. If there was 160,000, I felt even more confident, 170, 180. I mean, there was a scenario out there that if they approach the all-time record of 187,000, that Trump gets 55, 56, 57 percent of the vote. That's unfathomable. I mean, it really and truly is in an Iowa primary or an Iowa caucus that is being so invested in by some of these candidates. Um, the Trump, ah, Ramaswamy got about nine percent of the vote ish, somewhere there about. He suspended his campaign and endorsed Donald Trump last night. I mean, he's a basically a caricature of Trump. I mean, he's, you know, the Trump movement had full energy of 60%. I mean, I've said two of three. 
I mean, I stand by that. If DeSantis gets out, um, I mean, it's, it's over anyway. I mean, Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. It's just pretty interesting to try and analyze. And you watch some of these um, folks on Twitter who said, wait until this happens. Wait until um, that happens. Wait until something else happens. There ain't nothing going to happen to stop Donald Trump from being the nominee. I mean, if you look at some of the uh, entrance and exit polling last night, Rev, 61% of Republicans said they'd vote for him if he's convicted of a crime. Um, it, this is an interesting number to me, Josh. 30%. I mean, I saw it in two places, 30, and I saw it at 33. So roughly one in three Republicans believe the election of 2020 was illegitimate. And I think that's an interesting phraseology. I watched CNN a good bit. They had Axelrod on there. And the reason I'm watching CNN is I want to see Axelrod respond because he's the mouthpiece of Obama. So, so when Axelrod evaluates and offers up an opinion, I mean, it's not the Biden administration he has loyalty to. I mean, it's the Obama administration that he has loyalty uh, to. So I was watching a lot of CNN to watch Axelrod try to digest. I mean, you got Joey Reid on MSNBC who's a nut. I mean, an absolute certified nut. Uh, Rachel Maddow, a nut. Their biggest problem is how dare America allow as many white Christians to gather in one place. I mean, it was insanity. I mean, it really was. Joy Reid and Rachel Maddow, basically, I mean, there's a clip out there where Maddow says, I studied this. I mean, what do you mean you studied that? What does that mean? I've studied this. Iowa is heavily influenced by white evangelicals. <laughs> okay. I mean, some places are heavily influenced by Democrat African-Americans. Some places are heavily influenced by, you know, um, less than religious Republicans or less than religious um, Democrats. What, what does that mean? But Joy Reid was furious that tonight was about a bunch of white evangelical Christians supporting um, Donald Trump, a guy who cheated on his wife, and there's to tell you what he did and what he's done. Um, they still fail to understand that this is a sustained political movement Last night was a confirmation of that. And America first, you want to be grammatically correct, ain't going nowhere. I mean, it's here. And it's it's well. It's alive. It's thriving. It's sustaining. It's fundamentally reshaping my word this morning, reorienting the grand old party. And you can like it or not. Now, I do believe, and we'll, it'll take a few days to get to, to the bottom of this, but as I watch Twitter, and I watched the Bill Crystals of the world, Heath Mayo's of the world, and the, some of the others. Scott Morfield would be a, another guy. I mean, the, the establishment, those who have gotten wealthy and, and, and made money on the back of convincing voters, the hayseeds and bumpkins like you and I, to do what we knew probably wasn't in our best interest, but we kept doing it anyway. And when we kept electing, you know, a Bush or a, a McCain or a Dole or a Romney, I mean, that they were relevant political figures. They were relevant activists. They were, their Twitter sphere mattered. And, and now they're searching and they're scrambling. Adam Kinzinger, you know, was another. Liz Cheney said, this really sucks. I mean, that was her tweet last night. This really sucks. And I responded to Liz Cheney. I said, so does Obamacare. I remember no, that. That was Megan McCain. Megan McCain. I'm sorry. Yeah. Who, who did I say? You said Liz Cheney. Megan McCain. Because remember the thumbs down. Yeah, her dad. Um, but I mean, she said, this really sucks. Now, I've not seen... Liz Cheney's tweet, but I'm sure it'll be to mm -hmm. the same point. The Republican Party is better off trying to find some of these moderate Democrats who aspire for a better way. And by that, I mean the bumper sticker of America First, policy that promotes the American worker, 
the American family, and the American way of life. You're not going to turn the Lincoln Project. You're not going to turn the National Review. You're not going to turn the Wall Street Journal. Now, but they are fully invested in stopping Trump by any means necessary. They're not going to circle the wagons. Now, but if you're counting on these people now to help Republican-based voters circle the wagon and build uh, kind of a protective tent around Donald Trump and let's get him ready for November, they ain't playing ball. They're not going to be on the team. They're never going to be on the team. Um, the better opportunity is to go out and market this party, market this brand, market this movement to moderate Democrats and independents. I mean, that's the most fertile ground. Those folks have, I mean, they, they, they cast their lot. I mean, they're not coming back home. It's 15%. I mean, some say it's 20. I don't think it's that many. It's, it's probably about 15% historically Republican voters that are establishment elites that just aren't going to stoop to our level. They just aren't going to allow Donald Trump to be leader of the party and the hayseeds and bumpkins to be the most powerful force. So let's go out and find some more hayseeds and bumpkins who aren't that committed to one party or another. Independents and, and moderate Democrats in, in uh, Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Nevada, in Arizona, in Georgia. That is the path forward. That's the math that wins the election for Trump in 2020. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. You know how those white Christians are, don't you, Josh? I do. You know how when they gom up? <laughs> you know when those white Christian Dumb. folk gom up in the cold weather and vote for an, c- kind of an evil authoritarian? Hmm. You know how they do, Josh? I do. Okay. I just want to make sure. I mean, we're leaving this place to you and your generation. I just want you to be aware of all these um these evil forces out there. And always remember that a wise man told you with an Under Armour hoodie on that you got to watch those white Christians in Iowa. <laughs> if, you, if you take your eye off those white Christians in Iowa, you'll get exactly what you deserve, Josh. You'll get a dictatorship. Yeah, now you're sounding yeah, like Joy Reid. Yeah, that, that, that's bad for me to ask Josh. He's going like, really? Yeah. I get a dictator? That's what I want. <laughs> Yahoo. I mean, that's, that's what I want. I, I want prefer to, a monarch. I want to get dictator. And okay. really, that's that's their argument, you know, authoritarian, dictator. Threat I mean, to democracy. I mean, Trump was president for four years, and I can't really think of any examples where he was a dictator. I mean, he was the president. He ran things. He's a bull in a china shop. Yeah, He's just, a strong man. Yeah. I mean, he, there's no doubt about that. People are attracted to that right now. But he still, I mean, he still had to pretty much follow the rules. He had to, you know deal with Congress and courts and everything else to get his agenda done. That's Correct. not what, that's not what dictators do, is it? No. I mean, to me, dictators don't follow the constitution. Right. And I don't think Trump, I mean, there's not a charge that I know of, of him not following the constitution. I guess the obstructing official proceeding and not allowing the peaceful transfer of power is what the other side would argue. But, um, but well, uh, power transferred on time, well, I mean, like the, it was supposed I'm to. I'm just telling you guys, the left and the, the establishment are just underestimated the appetite that people have for this political movement. I know it. I mean, I don't chuckle. I don't laugh because I don't think it's over. I mean, I think it's going to be a grind. And I'm not sure many have the stomach for it. I mean, I, I'm being honest with you. I think it was a breeze one day last week. You know, I don't know that I've gotten the stomach for it. It's going to be a grind. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be in your face. It's going to be confrontational. It's going to be brutal at times. It's going to be violent at times. I mean, it just is. I'm sorry. It's, it's going to be... It's not going to be pretty all the time. But if you're going to throw out the polit- the political elite establishment that have basically ordained themselves 
controllers of the government. There's an interesting two words, and one's not a word; it's an acronym. But there's an interesting phrase that I've noticed in the G, excuse me, in the uh, in the National Review, Wall Street Journal, Orbit, the GOP. The GOP better get this under control. Uh, but the GOP better do something with this for the GOP. The GOP is a is is simply an organizational structure that allows voters' interest to consolidate and be heard and affect government in some way, shape, or form. Why does a political party exist if not to represent the interests of the people who call themselves members of that political party? And two beats one every time. I mean, two is twice as many as one for you folks in Pamplico. That means that the GOP, and I'm not talking about with the Wall Street Journal, the GOP, and the National Review, the GOP, and Fox News, the GOP, the GOP has lost control of its voters. The GOP has no business controlling its voters. The GOP never had any business controlling its voters. The voters and their consensus are what creates a platform or agenda to affect change in government to reflect the values and views of the people. That's what the GOP is there for. They seem to, some people in leadership of the GOP seem to have forgotten well, that here, fact. Here's what they should say. It's not the GOP. You ready? Our GOP. Our GOP. This is our party. You hayseeds and bumpkins have always gotten back in line. I mean, we've allowed you to have a fit and a rage, and we have allowed you to have a, a hissy fit, but eventually you know that we run this political party. You know how these things play out, and here we are today in a totally different set of circumstances, and they don't like it. They absolutely would rather not there be a GOP than a GOP of which they're not in control of. That's where we are. It has historically been their GOP. They realize today, more than ever, it's not their GOP. So they don't want any part of it. I mean, they, they want this GOP to fail. They wanted their GOP to act as their vending machine, you know, their, their, um, their path forward, their way to get uh, in the click, get good jobs and big consulting contracts and all these other sorts their of things. Their ATM machine. Sure, but that's exactly <laughs> what it was, feeding at the trough of government. And now the hayseeds and bumpkins and hillbillies have said, hey, we're on to you. And we don't care much for the way you've treated members of this party, voters of this party. You sent me mailers every year saying X, Y, Z, and you never did anything you said you'd do. I'm not sure this guy, I'm not sure Cheeto Jesus would do what he said he's going to do, but he's different than you. And right now, at this moment, that's good enough for me. And that's where we are as a political party. It's not the GOP. It's our GOP. I want to go back to one thing you said about Governor Haley. You said her instincts are not conservative. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, on the stump, when she is controlling the conversation, and I've seen this, Rev, Nikki and I toured together. I mean, when I ran for lieutenant governor, I knew Nikki's speech up one side and down the other, and it was good, and it was effective, and she was good at it, and I felt I was good. And I felt, Well, I mean, obviously, we were pretty good at it. We won. I mean, she won the governorship. I won the lieutenant governorship. I saw a million of her speeches, and I saw how good she is when she is in that box. I've got these talking points. I've been coached to say these things. I've rehearsed this a million times. But when she's asked something that she didn't expect, she struggles. And she her, her responses, if they're instinctive, are not conservative. She was asked one ah, year, maybe two years ago, 
when there when there was rumblings about her potentially running for uh, for uh, president of the United States, we always Nikki was ambitious. I mean, everybody knew that they knew anything about her. But she was asked about George Floyd, and her answer was police reform. And I remember thinking to myself, that's not the conservative answer to George Floyd. I mean, the conservative answer is, you know, um, let, let's get to the bottom of this. But let's find out exactly what happened. Let's stop the rioting. Let, let's, let's, let's understand whether the police officer was in the wrong or not. But I mean, let's do a full evaluation. I mean, I knew. I mean, if somebody would ask me that, my conservative instincts would have taken over. And I would have said, I am disappointed the state of Minnesota decided to politicize instead of investigate. And, and I'm not sure where I stand because the state of Minnesota didn't decide to investigate, but rather politicize the events. And then we have these tragic riots and, and, you know, political leadership telling police to stand down. That's my conservative instinct. Her, her instinct went to police reform almost immediately. She gave a bad answer on the Civil War. Why? Because she didn't see that coming. She, she didn't know where that came from. Um, I don't know if you saw this or not, but last, last week she was asked, might have been in Iowa. It was in Iowa. Can a man become a woman? Well, I mean, the conservative instinct says, no, of course they can't. She was talking about protecting minor children, but she never, never gave an answer. Can a man become a woman? No. No. But there's chromosomal science. There's genetics. There's God. There's spirituality involved in this. And I'm not saying that my answer would be right every time, but my answer would reflect conservative principles every single time because I'm a conservative at heart. And I think you've got to ask yourself about Governor Haley. I think this, and we said it in the last hour, she, she, she came on the scene as a darling of the Tea Party. Her being elected governor was all about Sarah Palin, all about the Tea Party. Nikki was, we were so concerned about Nikki not gaining any traction to the governor's race that we were a little nervous she would drop down and run for lieutenant governor. And I knew she was a disciplined candidate. I knew she was highly ambitious. I knew it was going to be hard to, uh, harder to win that race had she said, hey, I can't raise the money. I'm not getting any traction. I'm going to run for lieutenant governor and try to understand the way the state works. You know what I mean? Come up with some answer and, and reason for not running for governor. But Sarah Palin endorsed. She took off like a rocket ship. I'm not guessing that. I'm not reading about that. I saw that with my own eyes. So she came on the scene as a darling of the Tea Party. She is the darling of the establishment today, the darling of Wall Street. The reason she can't answer the George Floyd question, the reason she can't answer the, um, the is a man, a woman question, is she's taking money from people who aren't conservative. They're funding her campaign. The majority of her campaign is being funded by corporate interest who have a very woke view of the world. So Nikki finds herself unbelievably conflicted if she is a conservative. I mean, she, she is kind of carry the mind. I'm a conservative. I just don't know. She gives conservative speeches. She is unbelievably disciplined in giving those speeches to suggest I am a conservative governor, former governor of South Carolina. But when she is surprised by a question and doesn't have a rehearsed answer and hasn't practiced in the mirror, given this answer, her instincts lead me to believe that she's nowhere near as conservative as she says she is. Let's go to the phone. Jason and Marion, good morning. 
Morning, Ken. Morning, Dave. Dave, I got a question for you, and then I got a scenario I'd like to lay out for Ken. Um, Dave, has there been any talks or, um, you know, discussions on having a, like a text line where maybe someone doesn't feel comfortable calling in, they can just kind of text their give that man a cigar, give that Jason a cigar. <laughs> it's funny. Did you and Ken communicate before this call? Because actually, Ken's been talking about this uh, for a long time. We've looked into it, and we just haven't put anything together yet. I think it'd be a great idea though, because we, we certainly would like to come up with more ideas and ways that uh, listeners can engage with the show. We know not everybody wants to call or has the time to call. Uh, so yeah, we've looked into it, but hadn't done anything about it. All right. Well, keep up, keep it up, man. Uh, Ken, here's the scenario. And I know Vivek talked about this in the past. And I think his last, um, town hall he did last week for the caucus, he, he went into a little more detail about this. Um, let's just fast forward to March, and let's just say something happens to Biden. You can pick whatever whatever it might be. And I know there's a lot of wrinkles that would have to be ironed out, but let's just say Kamala, they swear Kamala in or whatever. <clears throat> and the DNC says, oh, no, we don't have enough time to hold the primary, so we're going to pick the, the candidate to run up against whoever. And insert, you know, Gavin Newsom, wherever you want to insert. Um, and then if you have all these blue states that have taken Trump off the um, ballot, you know, starting with Oregon, then it went to Maine and now California. And I just saw something the other day about Oregon. And I think they're doing this to keep to so Trump doesn't win the primary. Now, I don't think it's really going to matter because let's just say he runs the table he already won all Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. By the time Super Tuesday comes along, he'll be so far ahead. I don't even think they can – anybody would be able to catch him. But, I mean, because they want, like, a Nikki Haley and a Gavin Newsom running it because America Firsters or Trump voters aren't going to care if Gavin Newsom just wipes the floor with Nikki Haley. There's not going to really be much upset. But so this way they can pull the shenanigans and – shady dealings but if trump's the nominee and you know they tried to do something they know because of what happened last time that there's going to be you know unrest is that what you, what you think about all that thank you jason wow i mean that you thought that thing through maybe you need to go to work with the dnc seriously <laughs> i mean that's uh that's kind of an elaborate there's i mean there's still a decent chance that biden's not the nominee I mean, I, I believe that. I, I don't know why. I don't have inside information. I don't talk to Democrats that run the DNC by any stretch of the end. If I did, they wouldn't tell me that. But uh, but something tells me that there's serious contemplation going on within high-ranking Democrat officials about what to do. Um, it's kind of interesting. I've seen the name Dean Phillips a lot more in the last week. I mean, he's an announced candidate. I mean, he's running against Biden in the Democrat primary. Bill Ackman gave uh, him a million bucks Friday. I don't think I ever heard of him. What about, Dean uh, okay, but okay. just remember that. Dean Phillips. Okay. He's a he's been couched as a moderate, middle of the road, you know, Midwest Democrat. Yeah, a little bit harmless. You know, I mean he's he's not one of these extremists. He's not an Ivy Leaguer. He's not a, you know, women and men playing sports together. I mean, he, he's kind of an approachable, reasonable, uh, moderate Democrat. And I just I, I don't know why, but something tells me that they're going to pitch him. They're going to kind of a trial balloon. Uh, wh what do you guys think of this? What do you ladies think think of this? 
Um, I mean, I think they're convinced now. And, and a lot can happen, guys. I mean, we got indictments and potential convictions. And I mean, there was some data last night that about, what, 25 or so percent of Republican voters said if Trump is convicted of a crime, they couldn't vote for him. I don't know if you could depend on that data or not. I mean, they, there's a number out there, I'm sure, Josh, that if he's convicted of a crime or going to take a pass and they, they probably won't vote for Biden, but they just won't vote at all. But, but I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Trump would win the election today. I mean, if the presidential election today, he would win Michigan. He might win Wisconsin. He would win Nevada and Arizona. He'd win Georgia. I'm still not convinced that Republicans can outwork the precinct hustlers in Pennsylvania. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm with Kahaley. I mean, if a Republican ended up five points in, in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania, I, I just don't think you can win. But I think he wins the other swing states. And you, the 232 turns there to 235. You put Georgia back in the column. That's 251. I mean, it, it's it's not hard to get to 270 under that circumstance. But, but now, now what the Democrats are doing and the timeliness of what they'll do, when they'll do, how, I, don't, I don't know. But they have no confidence in Biden. None. Zero. The most, eight, the most recent ABC approval rating has been like 32 or 3%. There's never been a president of the United States with back-to-back approval ratings of less than 35. I mean, you've got your army out there somewhere. I mean, they'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Republican failure, Democrat failure, there's about, you know, 40% of America that just kind of sort of like to give you the benefit of the doubt because they identify as a Republican, they identify as a Democrat, and they feel a bit like a traitor. If they answer to a pollster, I don't approve of the job this guy's doing. I mean, there's just this weird loyalty. I'm a Republican. I ain't turning my back on my guy. He sucks, but I'm not turning my back. I'm not going to tell this pollster that he sucks. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. Hey, guys. Kid, if the Democrats truly want to win the presidency, it won't be with Biden. But, you know, uh, you were talking earlier this morning about how uh, they were all talking about a bunch of white Christians. Well, I want to go ahead and get on our Williams' side. He is absolutely right. White people are the problem. Because why is it that uh, these same white, leftist, godless, communist Democrats go and embrace black Christians at black churches? Every, every, where, was, where was Joe Biden at last week with, with a bunch of black Christians? And that was great, and that was wonderful. But white Christians are bad, and white Christians are evil. Why is that? My next question, too, well, it's not a question. I saw uh, where the Democrats were going through the list of things that uh, that, Biden, that uh, Trump is going to do if he gets elected, which is basically everything that they've been doing. But they added one. They said, now, we would not be at all surprised if Trump wouldn't even go so far and so extreme as to assassinate political opponents. Well, my next question is, who would he get to assassinate them? The FBI's in their pocket, the CIA's in their pocket. So who's going to be doing it to assassinating if anybody's going to get assassinated? It's not going to be Trump. It's going to be them. And I told you all that all back in 2020. I felt like if Trump would have been able to get into the White House, they would have assassinated him. So do not be at all surprised 
if, if that happens. I really would be amazed if Trump made it through a four-year presidency without being assassinated. And the question now because how corrupt is the Secret Service? Would they allow him to get assassinated? Right, thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Remember when Tucker asked that question of Trump, do you fear for your life? I mean, and I thought that was wow. I mean, that's – um. I mean, Tucker is provocative anyway. I mean, he's out there by that by by out there. I don't mean he's wrong. He's just out there. I mean, he says things that you would never imagine said in the mainstream, the political uh, or media mainstream. Um, and I remember when he said, kind of like damn. <laughs> I mean, you know these reactions good old boys have. I mean, we don't have real proper reactions. We're like, damn. I mean, let's hear that. I mean, let's just rewind that. Let's make sure I heard what Tucker. Asked him, and um, and I did. I absolutely, um, did. I, I don't know. I mean, I've I've never seen, I've never seen, this much resistance to a guy winning a nomination and eventually a presidency. It, it's been, I mean, it's been bizarre. He shows up in sixteen, and the New York Times covers him as an entertainment story, and then all of a sudden they realize, wow, this guy's figured out a way to garner some degree of support. And then another day, they say, this cat could win the primary. Nah. Yeah, he could. Nah. Yeah, he could. Nah. And and all of a sudden, he wins the primary. He wins the presidency. Um, surprises everybody. Remember, I mean, the, um, the glass ceiling arena and all the tears of the, you know, the, uh, the Hillary Clinton supporters. I mean, he called everybody off guard. I mean, I think we went to bed that night knowing that we had a puncher's chance. I don't think. Trump supporters went to bed that night believing he was the odds own favorite. But I do remember thinking to myself, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Trump wins this thing. And the James Carville on election night, I mean, I'll never, ever forget that. If somebody said, what are the most 10 memorable moments of your political life? That would be one. I mean, I hold Carville in high regard. I disagree with a lot of what he says, but his opinion matters to me. Robert Cahaley's opinion matters to me. I mean, I know what my gut and instinct and my feelings say, but when Carville says something, I mean, it matters to me and because it's intentional. I mean, he's not just throwing things out there. I mean, I would imagine over a bourbon, a cigar, and a tailgate, he would just throw things out there. But Carville on MSNBC said, this is looking like a bad night. And Rachel Maddow says, no, it's not, James. The Hispanics are voting in Florida. I mean, the African-Americans are voting in eastern Pennsylvania. And he said, yeah, but the, the, these white country folk, I mean, these white rural people are voting in ways that, he said, I've talked to sources of mine. And then remember, I mean, what he said in eastern Pennsylvania, I mean, it's unbelievable how long people are waiting in line. The turnout numbers are staggering. And if it's happening in eastern Pennsylvania, it's happening in western Ohio. And I'll never forget that for as long as I live. And I don't think he'd mind me saying this. About 30 minutes after Carville says that, Ed McMullen who's a good friend of mine, and been on the show. Ed ended up Trump's ambassador to Switzerland. Um, Ed texted me, don't go to bed. And I said, you can't do that, man. Give me more. (laughs) Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. And he said, rural white people are voting in ways unimaginable. I mean, they've never, ever seen the sorts of turnouts they're having in western Florida, in eastern Pennsylvania. I mean, excuse me, in western Pennsylvania, in eastern Ohio. In, in the rural areas of Michigan. And it was an awakening. I mean, it was the beginning of a political movement. And and we agreed, Rev, the next morning, it was a sugar high. I mean, Trump gets to the White House, Russia collusion. Uh, you know, it, it began with Russia collusion. 
It ended with two impeachments, 91 indictments, and men with guns at Mar-a-Lago. So why wouldn't anything be on the table? I mean, imagine that. He gets gets inaugurated president of the United States a week or two later. I mean, they're, you know, Russia collusion. They're having impeachment hearings and inquiries. Um, You know, they they impeach, but they don't indict or convict. And then you have, you know, these, um, (laughs) these very politicized district attorneys and attorney generals and solicitors and law enforcement in general, um, mishandling classified information, obstructing justice becomes, you know, a, a situation where a private residence finds itself being, you know, basically invaded by the military of the United States of America. I mean, this is, that's what happened uh, in Mar-a-Lago. And I still believe that that's, the people that have tried to destroy Trump have only intensified his relevancy. I mean, I think he's more relevant today than he's ever been, not because of the rural people in, in eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania, but rather the people that are trying to destroy him. And I think, you know, Breeze offers the most radical proposal you could imagine. I mean, if you can't beat him, if we get to the summer and the economy begins, because, see, I don't think we factored that in yet. But the economic news has been far worse than they're leading you to believe. They've revised the job numbers in 10 of the last 12 months down. I mean, the job reports were about 550,000 overestimating of new employment. I mean, the economy's very fragile right now. Delinquency on car loans, delinquency credit card. Um, more people are tapping into the 401ks than ever before. Um, th- there's a lot of things out there um, that are troubling about the economy. So we've not factored in an even worse economy. And even so let's say we get into the summer, and the economy really begins to struggle. I mean, I think unemployment goes up two, two and a half, maybe three percentage points. I think we're going to see, uh, you know, once again, inflation catches up. When when the, when the cost of goods goes up, and the government gives you enough money and stimulus to kind of make up for the cost of goods going up, you can keep your head above water. But when the cost of goods does not go down and the government stops stimulating, there's going to be some economic imbalance there. And that's where we are almost at. And that's why people are tapping into 401ks. That's why there's more credit on revolving credit cards than ever before. That's why delinquencies are higher than they've ever been. But the government's trying to manipulate, distort, and they give these jobs numbers. In 10 of the last 12 months, they've had to revise the job numbers down, and in the aggregate, 550,000. So we were told there was X men number of jobs created, Williams, and there has not been. We missed that number by over half a million. So, so when Trump, we're talking about Trump right now winning. I mean, imagine we get to July or August and the economy really begins to struggle. Trump wins in a landslide. So is Breeze's proposal radical? Yes. It's about as radical as it gets. But with Trump... What have they stopped at? Where has been the point of which they say, no, in the name of democracy, in the name of the Constitution, in the name of preserving a more perfect union, no, we're not doing it. They hadn't said it yet, have they? I mean, give me an example of the government or the elites or the establishment or the Democrats or some Republicans. Give me an example of them pumping the brakes on going after Trump. There is no example. There's absolutely no example of them pumping the brakes when it comes to going after the guy that got 51% of the vote, historic win in Iowa, 
Um, and look at some of the exit entrance polling. He is more powerful today as a political actor than he's ever been. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Bobby and Florence, good morning. You're on the air. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, sir. All right. Uh, Trump crushed Iowa caucus. Trump's going to win the South Carolina Republican primary by a landslide. Uh, my question is, you mentioned Dean Phillips. Would it be worth South Carolina Republicans registered Republicans voting in the South Carolina open primary to vote in the Democrat primary for Dean Phillips against Joe Biden. Um, I just believe that if Dean Phillips got more votes in South Carolina than Joe Biden, it will rock D.C. and the liberal media to the core. Um, just like to get your opinion on that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that, that's always a strategy. I mean, that was a little bit of Haley's strategy in Johnson County, Iowa, Nikki beat Donald Trump. Trump won 98 of 99 counties. He lost Johnson County by one vote to Nikki Haley. And that's the county that they believed the most independents and Democrats voted. Um, that's, that's always an interesting pre-election plot. You know, will the Democrats do this? Remember the Tom Rice-Russell Fry election. I mean, there was concern in the Fry camp that, you know, a lot of Democrats were going to cross over and vote for Rice because they didn't like Trump. And Rice had the guts to stand up to Donald Trump and the Democrats. Well, it didn't happen. It never happens. I mean, it happens anecdotally, but it doesn't happen uh, very often. Democrats vote for Democrats and Republicans vote for Republicans. And I just believe um, it taints the system a bit when you do that. I mean, I understand the strategy and I understand, you know, having a beer, a cup of coffee and having a conversation about how to, you know, how to affect change and, and influence. The, I'm not sure I'd want to run against Dean Phillips. I mean, I think Joe Biden's who you want to run against if you're a Republican. I do. I mean, I think his health is in decline. I think it's obvious he doesn't have his wherewithal about him. He doesn't understand he's not coherent enough to do the day-to-day job of being president. So I'd rather have Biden than I had anybody else. Um, but I, but once again, there's too many conversations about other candidates for me to believe that they're not thinking about kind of an escape route. What what do we do in case? And and I think the biggest part of the election moving forward is the economy. I mean, you saw some of the um, polling last night, the data, inflation and immigration. I mean, in some places, immigration exceeded uh, inflation, but that's what the economy, uh, that's what the election is about, the economy and immigration. And I think Biden loses on both of those. He's failed miserably on immigration. He's failed miserably on the economy and, I mean, do you believe they're going to fast-track a solution on immigration? I mean, the better strategy question would be, would, will the Republicans help Biden secure the border? I mean, I know they want border security, but do they want border security more than they want to win the presidency? And I think, you know, holding Biden hostage is, I mean, once again, it's not the country's best interest, but when has Washington ever had the country's best interest at heart? It's about political expediency, so I believe... Uh, the Democrats, excuse me, the Republicans could say, you know, we want a better immigration deal. And, you know, and I'm talking about, you know, Roundup and s- some other sorts of things that you know Democrats aren't going along with. But as a Republican in South Carolina, I would strongly advise you to go vote in the Republican primary. And personally, I'd rather Donald Trump run against Joe Biden than I had Dean Phillips or anybody 
not named um, Joe Biden. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Florence. Good morning. Good morning, guys. And Ken, you, they, that kind of stole a little bit of my uh, question there because my first statement was just going to be the fact that it's scary how bad Trump could beat anybody if the Republicans would coalesce around him. But we know that's not going to happen. But then my next question is, have you seen any polls about who, on that same question, of who we would rather run against, uh, about whether we would rather, you know, if the Republican general would rather see Biden or somebody else. But I do agree with you that Biden is just, you know, the, the obvious one we want to run against. But I'm just curious what the other thoughts are out there. Thanks thank, a lot. Thank you. I mean, I, I think Robert and I talk a little bit about, and I'm talking about Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar. Robert and I talk a little bit about who don't we want to see. I mean, is there somebody out there that, that makes us nervous? Um, I mean, Gavin Newsom does it. I, I think Gavin Newsom is all hat, no cowboy, or all hat, no cattle. What am I trying to say here? Uh, you know what I mean? I, I just think the more you see of Newsom, the less you like. Yeah, when that, he had that debate with Ron DeSantis. Under, he, just underwhelming. I mean, just not. absolutely underwhelming. Um the, the the Democrats have a problem right now in measuring up to Obama. I mean, he was so good at it. Like him, hate him, wish he were president, wish he'd never been president. The cat was a generational political talent. So after that, you have inferior quality of candidates. Hillary Clinton came along, an inferior candidate. Joe Biden comes along, an inferior candidate. Um, I would imagine a Gretchen, Whitner, uh, Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan is somebody whose name you'll hear bandied about. Dean Phillips uh, is another person you'll hear. Uh, the only thing that concerns me about what the Democrats could do, they could run a generational candidate. They could run a, a much younger candidate and say, look, we've agreed that the nation doesn't want a bunch of 80-year-olds running, running the country. And we're offering up this 45-year-old person, this 50-year-old uh, person, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. When I ran for lieutenant governor and I knew I had myself in a good position, the only thing that really concerned me and kept me up at night, I felt I could beat the field. I mean, I really did. I was convinced that, you know, between Robert and myself and, you know, our supporters, we could, we could win this race unless a rich man from Greenville or a rich lady from Greenville, a self-funder is what we call it in politics because there were so many Republican voters in Greenville and there would be some homerism coming into play there. So I've tried to think out and, and, and figure, okay, is there anybody out there that we're not thinking about that could replace Biden and, and be more difficult to beat? Well, I mean, I think Biden is about as weak as you get. I mean, I just do. But I do believe that if the elections are about contrast, and I think somebody 45 years old with a D beside their name would be harder to beat than Joe Biden. Who that is, I don't know. the issue about the vice president. Sure. Right. I mean, if they're well, I mean, the most loyal as- voter the Democrats have is African American females. So, do you kick Kamala Harris aside in 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 preference of a Dean Phillips or some other you know forty five, forty six, forty seven, forty eight year old charismatic, enthusiastic liberal? I mean, that that's going to be hard to do. Uh, it, It'd be a know, risky move. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this, and I think Nikki's beginning to find this out. Running for president's a big deal. I mean, you're exposed at every corner, and and Trump is made for it. I mean, I'm not saying his policies are, are great for America. I think they are. Some don't. But his personality is made for the presidency. I mean, there's no moment too big for Donald Trump. The only moment you could argue that Trump failed to answer the bail 
as a businessman or woman would is when Fauci said, lock it down. I, I've told you, Ref, if I'm DeSantis, I mean, to me, that was just, I mean, I would have, I would have, my campaign would have been exclusively about, we didn't listen to Fauci and he did. We didn't listen to Fauci and he did. We did, did, did I tell you, we didn't listen to Fauci and he did. Josh, did I tell you that? We didn't listen to Fauci and he, I mean, I, I would have, I would have just hammered that home, hammered that home, hammered that home. Now, Trump can deflect. He's a master deflector. There's no doubt about it. He would have come back with some sort of counterpunch. But um, but no, I would much rather right now run against Joe Biden than I had any conceivable Democrat I can come up with. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Tuesday morning, Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University is with us this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, good morning. Good to be Rock, here. Rocking the Buffalo Bill vest. Oh, yeah. I see that. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a sweater vest. I mean, that would be a bit pansy. <laughs> it's a, it's a, um, it's an insulated wintery, yeah, you know, wintery vest. Okay, we began the show this morning, and I want to get sure. your take. It's easier for me as a South Carolinian to say what they should do in Buffalo, <laughs> what they should do in Green Bay. But, but I said this morning that Buffalo and Green Bay should consider. Maybe not an indoor stadium, but some indoor outdoor experience, uh-huh. some sort of cover. Yeah. Bolt, the, 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 the Bills and Packers are probably amongst the most rabid fan bases yep. in all of the NFL. I mean, there's no question about it. And they has they have this blue collar mindset yeah. in Green Bay and in Buffalo. But there's something in January <laughs> called Lake Effect Snow. Yeah. And it makes football <laughs> less fun. When you're yes. dealing with late, or does it make it less no, fun? Well, I, if you don't know this, the Bills are building a brand new stadium. But there's no roof right, on exactly. it. Exactly. And it was a big, big debate. A lot of people said, hey, at least put a retractable one on it. But the owners, the powers that be said, this is this is how football was meant they to be They sit in played. a box. So, yeah, they don't have to worry <laughs> about it. They sit in a box. Uh, that's true. No, and it, it's when you're spending $2 billion on a stadium, what's another three, $400 million for the roof button today i'm not writing the checks so this the decision was made i mean certainly it would you could use it year round if if you had some sort of retractable roof on it but even if you had a dome stadium with the weather that hit sure you could have played the game on time as it was scheduled sunday but it would have been empty an empty stadium i mean it was so bad the nfl actually talked about moving it to atlanta uh, and the bills pushed back on that but it's just again down here that, that's one of the reasons why I'm down here, so I don't have to deal with that anymore. But again, you saw, you know, they were paying guys 20 bucks an hour uh, to come out and shovel the sh- uh, shovel the snow. Got to be careful. Let's try saying that three times. <laughs> you know, some, somebody said it was like Buffalo, New York's Dunkirk moment where, you know, they're just impressing guys off the street, giving them a shovel and, you know, get the stadium. Closed. A shovel and, and grub. So oh, There was food involved. Exactly. And, and when the bills were bad and this happened, they'd give you a ticket. As well, so you so you're on the record. I want to get you on the record now. You're, you're not a Green Bay fan, but you're oh, a God, Buffalo no. fan. I mean, those two stadiums come to mind when I think about inclement yep. weather. So no roof, or yes to a roof in the Bills' new stadium. If well, you if you were the owner of the Bills, if 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 I were the owner, it would have been a retractable okay roof, just so you you've got the option. But I think the problem is once you put, if it's a retractable roof, the NFL makes the decision if you can open it or close it. So you the, might say, hey, let, let's have a snow game. Because the, uh-huh. the NFL kind of sort of made the decision to not play Sunday, but rather Monday. I mean, they consulted with the Bills. 
Yeah, but, but the I, NFL kind of drives that train. When I, the, the New York governor, who's, who happens to be from Buffalo right now, was very, very adamant. It's like, this is a state of emergency. And the Weather Service knew Buffalo was going to get hit, and they knew the timing. They just didn't know how much. They got eight inches in a single hour. And then what stopped Sunday, you got two more feet on the stadium on Sunday. So, I mean, it was just a, a perfect storm, uh, just a terrible, terrible bit of bad luck for Buffalo. But in the end, it all worked out. You know, they, they got it, most of it cleared out. And they, they played well. Snowballs, and they, they, they look good. Uh, had a kind of kind of cruised. It got a little close near the end, but uh, Josh Allen then pulled it out. So And yeah. Kansas City comes to Buffalo. To Sunday. Buffalo. So we finally get Kansas City in our in our building. So it's uh, the NFL world. All the eyes will be on Buffalo. And it's not that often that the and people you, talk about Buffalo. You know the happiest fans are in the NFL? The 49er fans, because they're playing in San Francisco and not in Green Bay, yes, because Green Bay is very similar to, to Buffalo yeah. with that lakefront snow. It should be a lot, a lot better next week. It'll it'll be cold, but it doesn't look like you're going to have any inclement weather. Cold is what? So Well, cold in Buffalo, mid, mid-20s. mid Okay. So, which is, you know, t- T-shirt weather in <laughs> Buffalo. <laughs> Good deal. Is somebody on the phone? Sorry. Yep. Let's uh, go there. We have Joe in Florence. Joe, you are on with Dr. Bolt. Good morning, Joe. Um, good morning, guys. Well, my daughter uh, is going to college next year, and she's applying for something called the Calvin Coolidge Scholarship. <laughs> and I must admit, I really don't know much about Calvin Coolidge. And um, is was he sort of ac- an academic or an intellectual? Uh, apparently, he there's a there's a really valuable scholarship a national scholarship in his name. And and I thought you might be able to give me a little insight on on that scholarship. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Congratulations and good luck with your daughter. I'm just throwing darts at the dartboard. Calvin Coolidge's president uh, after Warren G. Harding in the early 1920s, uh, very, very fiscally responsible Republican, cut taxes across the board numerous times. One of those guys who was kind of forgotten about but when Ronald Reagan became president after the election of 1980, of all of the presidents that Dutch tried to model himself after, he picked Calvin Coolidge. And so I think that tells you all you need to know about uh, Calvin Coolidge right there. A good, very, his nickname was Silent Cal, and a reporter one time asked or said to him, Mr. President, I bet I can get you to say more than two words. And Coolidge said, you lose. And so that was uh, tells you all you need to know about Calvin Coolidge. Uh, he was the governor of Massachusetts before he became president. Uh, and famously, the police department in Boston went on strike, creating just a sense of chaos. And Coolidge fired the entire police department and said there's no right to strike against the public safety at any time. This sort of made him a hero, made him the obvious choice to be put on the ticket with Harding in 20. Harding was a bit of a philanderer, very corrupt, had all sorts of scandals and mistresses. And he was the, the perfect anecdote when Harding passed away. He was squeaky clean uh, and then won re-election with ease in 24. And usually regarded as a not an elite, but uh, one of those guys sort of in that next run, that next tier of presidents. So. But but somewhat, I mean, like you said, I mean, I, I've read a little bit about him. I mean, he was fiscal conservative. Yes, I mean, absolutely. So, oh, some, yes. some accused him of kind of austerity me- yes. measures and, and that's probably starving the right government use. to death and whatnot. I mean, in a time that that was not very, very popular. Um you're an academic. You're a yeah. history chair. You've seen a lot of things in the body politic. Uh, your specialty <laughs> is from the Revolutionary War to the Civil yeah, War. Good stuff. But the Iowa caucus has become very important in the process of electing or nominating a Republican yeah. nominee. What did you make? Of, what is your takeaway from yesterday's Iowa caucus? 
there, there was a caucus last night? <laughs> now, now, usually, right, for guys like you, this is a holy night of obligation. We're going to be up all night looking at the, the polls, the data, anything we can get our hands on. It was sort of anticlimactic. There was, you know, it's, it, it kind of reminded me of the, the first Saturday when college football starts and Alabama plays Mercer and Tennessee plays Tennessee Tech, Georgia plays Florida Atlantic. Yeah, you're expected to win. Trump won going away. There was really no no drama. He did, did what he was expected to do. Gave a nice, nice little speech. And it was one of those things that just the weather was the bigger story kind of kind of going into it. I mean, he didn't really he won with ease, won by 50 points. And I guess you could say there was a bit of a race for second place coming out of it. But this certainly, if it didn't already, it's it cements Trump's it's a stranglehold. He's going to be the nominee. And I think the other ones are just kind of praying now. It's like a, a Hail Mary to keep with the football that maybe the legal stuff goes sideways. And so it's like, aha, you know, I beat you 21 to 19. I'm, I'm number two. It's got to fall to me at this point. But it's, yeah, it's now history has told us just because you win the Iowa caucus, it's not a, a guarantee that you're going to win the nomination. I don't see how DeSantis or Governor Haley can kind of could kind of come back for that. And it's kind of like t- to that college football metaphor. I mean, it was De- DeSantis paid like $50 million the campaign and got nothing to show from it. It's kind of like when Alabama plays a school a million dollars to come in and get beaten. At least all right, they get the million dollars. It was money poorly spent by the DeSantis campaign. And I don't know if he makes a stand in New Hampshire, maybe South Carolina, but he's got Governor Haley to cont- contend with down here. And so, again, it was the expectation. Everybody kind of did what they expected. If you turn turn the clock back, if we go back to January 2023, and you say DeSantis is going to get barely hold on to second place and get 20 percent, then how? No, you're you're joking. He's he's probably going to win this. This is the the springboard. So compared to where he was a year ago, maybe that's the big surprise. But he's been floundering for for six months, and I don't know if the guy's looking for an exit ramp, maybe to save some face. He's still very very young. He's going to have multiple bites at the apple. I think the longer he hangs around, the worse it makes the poor guy look, unfortunately. I, I, I'm with you. I think the quicker he exits stage right, um, <laughs> the, the better off his eventual political career will be. You're from Buffalo. I'm from Pamplico. <laughs> I understand America first. You've led yeah. me to believe that you understand yeah, America right. first. Buffalo How would Army. you and I at a Starbucks in Georgetown? <laughs> I'm not talking about Georgetown, South Carolina. I'm talking about Georgetown, oh, the elite Georgetown, the exclusive Georgetown. If you and I meandered, I'm from Pamplico, you're from Buffalo. If we meandered into a Starbucks in La Jolla or Georgetown and began conversing with the locals about America first, what would you tell them? They don't sense. What are you telling? What would you tell them they're missing? Because they're 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 all uh-huh. gathered in Starbucks this morning going, what in the world is happening here? Yeah. What would you tell them, Dr. Bolt, is happening? Well, again, I think the individuals like that, they live in sort of like this this bubble. And they're, they're sort of protected. They only are going to interact. They're only going to talk with people that they know who think like them. They're only going to watch uh, CNN or MSNBC. And I tell them, maybe get out, go to other parts of the country. Turn on Fox News. Read. There's all sorts of other media on the Internet to take a look. And there are many people who are upset that they think that the government, the country, has forgotten about them, who've left them behind, whose wages have been stagnant uh, for 20 years, who see the American dream. It doesn't apply to them. Uh, their kids are not going to have a better a better future. And that's sort of the one thing we could always, it's, it's in our DNA, our essence, right, that parents are going to sort of bequeath a little something to their kids, and the kids are going to make the next step forward. And now we're seeing that dream for many, particularly in rural, you sort of fly over states, your Rust Belt areas. This, the American dream, no longer applies. 
You're working just as hard, maybe even long hours, for fewer wages and fewer benefits in the end. And Trump and the America Firsters are individuals who want to renegotiate, rip up these trade deals, do something about immigration, and get America back on the track, back where it was back in the 1980s and the 1990s. Why Trump? I mean, why has Trump resonated? I mean, you're right. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, you nailed the message. But he's a real estate t- tycoon. Yeah. I mean, he's a billionaire from New York City, for yeah. God's sake. Who you think what, would line it with why that? Why Trump? He's, they don't have their hooks into him. He's not corrupted. He's not a part of the system yet. I mean, he has re- continued to remain a potent voice, an outsider, that no matter what people, the smart guys, tell him to do, you, you never know. This guy's going to go off script at any time. He's probably made his advisors rip out their hair. But again, this is the one guy who doesn't play by all of the rules, who says, no, we've tried this before for how many years? It doesn't work. Let's try. Let's try something different. And I think for lots of Americans who, again, who've just been sort of stuck in this malaise, for want of a better word, for 15, 20 years, the wages aren't keeping up. They find out now because of inflation, their buying power is diminished. You know, think about how depressing it is. You know, if, if you can't give your kids the Christmas gifts that they want, if you can't take that family vacation, or heaven help you, if you can't go and visit your parents because you don't have enough money saved up to do that. And Trump is a guy who said, hey, let's try something different, and perhaps we can get back to the way things were, make America great again. Do, do you agree with the theory that I have that when people sense desperation, when they feel like you just said, I don't have the money to do what I want to do, I feel yeah. financially insecure. It's tough. We have a tendency to look for a strong man. Yeah, and maybe. Trump portrays himself. I mean, the other say he's a threat to democracy, he's a, a authoritarian, yeah. and all these other sorts of things. But but my theory is that when people feel desperate, yeah. they look for a strong man, a loud voice, yeah. an aggressive ambassador or warrior. Yeah. And Trump is kind of like almost like the, the Democrat there. We say Harry Truman, the buck is going to stop with him. You know, he's not going to, you know, 50 smart guys might tell him to do this, and Trump's going to say, no, my gut, my instinct tells me to do this instead. Yes, you, you, you Trump, he's not going to be governed by the polls. Uh, he's not going to have the guys in his ears. Oh, this is maybe what you need to do. He's his own guy. He's, again, a breath of fresh air. He's not going to get the talking points, you know. He's going to go off script. You know, if somebody pushes him maybe in a, in a press conference, interview, he's going to push back. He's going to stand up kind of like a Ronald Reagan or dare we see an Andrew Jackson over the years. And that's that's something refreshing because, again, the past for the past 25, 30 years we've had just the sort of the same guys. Maybe the policies are very, very different, but in many ways they're cut from the same mold. Uh, you can almost script. You know what they're going to say uh, when they're asked these questions. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University is with us today. There's been a lot of conversations. I mean, obviously, you and I believe that the Trump nomination is inevitable. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, 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 unless something just course. unbelievable happens, <laughs> you he's never going know, to be. You never know with Trump. We keep rewriting the book. But right, unless the legal thing really goes off the rails. But I mean, yeah. both last night, I mean, in some of the exit polling, entrance and exit polling, about 65% say they don't care if he's been you know convicted or not. Yeah. I mean, they want him to be their guy. And, and, and really, they believe that if they turn on Trump, they've given in to the establishment. Yeah, they've given in to, to this yeah. is what they want us to do. Right. So I'm not doing it under any I circumstance. Um, I mean, I know Trump said it tongue in cheek about shooting someone in Fifth Avenue. <laughs> mm, I think he might if he shot the right one. Uh, Josh, give me the thumbs up. Like, depends on who he shoots. But uh, 
It wouldn't be that bad. I mean, just one person, Josh. What if he shot two people on Fifth Avenue? Is that too many? No, no, okay, that's fine. Let's <laughs> stop before we get ourselves. Well, we just and while we're going down that road, that would put him in elite company because Andrew Jackson <laughs> is the only president who shot and killed somebody there you before. Go. So. so, so that would be the direct well. connection to to Andrew Jackson. Um, the Democrats have a decision, and the decision is that they play the string out with Biden. Or yeah. do they go and find somebody else, and how do they orchestrate or organize that? Um, I mean, what's your take on yeah. on that? I think that ship has set sail. I'm sure they've got some sort of a backup plan. It's at least been discussed how they would orchestrate it. Who knows? It might be some really a weird interpretation of DNC rules, just in case something happens to Biden, which at his age, certainly you have to have that conversation. But to try and kind of do it in front of everybody, I, that that ship has set sail. They're kind of they're kind of locked into him at this point. And I this I mean this this is the bed that they've made. It's I, th- I think if I'm a Republican, I think you're running the economy. Yes, it's it's getting better. But as I said before, I don't know if people had to cut back on Christmas, cancel family vacations. Voters don't forget stuff like that. And, you know, things might even get better. You can finally get the raise. The, the health care can go down. Inflation can go down. But again, if you've had to cancel something or having to tell your kids, eh, I can't really get you that. Maybe may, maybe down the road, you know, maybe next year Santa can. That's voters, voters, that 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 sticks. And I think the economy that it just, it's been kind of just in the mud for a little while, two years at least, that's 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 a big problem. Well, I mean, every time you go to the grocery store, yes. you think of Joe Biden. Uh, you're up, you're I mean, right. in all honesty, but every time you think the um, I mean, I told Rev yesterday, I wouldn't know. I mean, I'll name the store, but there's a local Home Depot with the beach near my house. It's easy, it's convenient. Yeah. I mean, I try to support local business, but it's. I mean, I am what I am. So, so you know, when I don't support local business, I don't support local business. So I walk in to get a couple of light bulbs. And I'm expecting the bulbs to be five bucks, and they're nine bucks. Yeah, a lot more than you that. Know, I, 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 yeah. I order a dozen donuts, and I'm expecting them to be six bucks, and they're eleven bucks. Yeah, Twelve fifteen, right? Yeah, it's, it's and, and, you, and, and it, I'm not saying it's all Biden's fault. That's unfair to say it's all Biden's fault. I mean, both parties have agreed to spend money we don't have over <laughs> and over and over again. But but the reality is, the economy's fragile. Yes, uh, inflation is real. And that's not going to subside by November 2024. When you sign up for president, it's, this is what you're signing up for. If the economy is good, really through no fault of your own, you're going to take all the credit. And if it goes bad, right, then you're the guy with without a cheer when the music is over. And so right now, I, I feel your pain. It's like I go to the grocery store, and it comes right like 50, 60 bucks. But like I got just two, two, two nights worth of meals <laughs> and a couple of snacks. I'm going to be back here repeating the process. In a couple of days, and it's 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 painful, and you you does it make, make us cuts? angry, Rev? Does it make you angry? I mean, what is your what is your real emotion? I mean, I think about I mean, maybe well, I mean, I know I understand it because I have to do, do to do this radio show, but I mean, I understand modern monetary theory, and I understand quantitative easing, and I mean, I doubt if I went in the line at Food Line or, or the local grocery store and said, hey. You know why the grocery is so expensive? Quantitative easing and 73 Nixon, Nixon took us off the gold standard and the Fed's done this, the M2 money supply. And I mean, they'd go, get, get, leave me alone, dude. I mean, you're, you're harassing I, if, me. If you did that, I'd go to the next line. Yeah. But, but I mean, what is, what is the general right. uh, emotion you have when you're in line at the grocery store and you're expecting it to be? I mean, you, you've told me you now expect it to be much more expensive than you yeah. ever imagined it would be. But it's still finds a way to shock. But is it anger? I mean, is it anger, frustration? I, I, it's, it's probably 
frustration, I don't know, I'm past anger on it. I just shake my head, roll my eyes, and go, why? Why are we having to deal with this? And it's just so hard. And how do people, you know, how can you maintain when this is going on? Everybody's experiencing this. So, so Bolt, the, the raw energy, the raw emotion is what? I mean, is it anger? Is it frustration? It's all, it's all the above. But, again, you're thinking about, it, though, I wasn't dealing with this four years ago. And so look at, look at where we now are, right? So I'm going to pay a whole lot more for groceries, and then I'm going to stop at the gas station. I'm going to pay a whole lot more for gas than I was paying. And I'm going to pay my utility bill. I'm paying a whole lot more. Where does it end, right? They get you coming. They get you going. When you think about it, you think it didn't have to be this way. We didn't yeah. have to do this. Right. People yes. made decisions, and that's what makes you angry. But a lot of the decisions were made when Trump was president. Sure. So how does he escape blame? I mean, I think we've got to prepare ourselves for that. I mean, I don't know how competent Biden yeah. is. In, in When my boys were younger, they'd want to wrestle when I got home. You know what I mean? <laughs> And I called it play fight. Yeah. You know, they, they'd want to wrestle. And, I, and and Biden does this fake jog. I mean, it's like a play jog. Oh. You know, we're not really <laughs> jogging, but I want to show people that I am. I'm up for the job. Yeah. I'm up for the challenge. I'm spry. But I don't know that yeah. Biden has it in him, Rev, to convince the American people I didn't do all this. I mean, half this was done on Donald Trump's yeah. watch. How has Trump, in our world, escaped the blame of inflation? We blame it on Biden. I think Bolton nailed it. Because Trump's not the president anymore. Yeah. I mean, you're the right. boss. Do something about it. You got it while they're going. It was good. Yeah. But but is that fair? I mean, it, you know, I mean, the fair comes in October. I get politics doesn't find fairness very often. But but I mean, do you do you give Trump a pass on inflation? Um, I do for the most part. I mean, the because he Cause was you're president. A cultist. Well, <laughs> you're a cultist. But no, but you the, just admitted you're a cultist. The first rescue plan was that the 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 one we did in 2020. I mean, there's, there's so many I've lost track of them. Yeah, yeah. there was four. There, there was CARES one, CARES two, ARS one, ARS yeah, two, Inflation Reduction. Yeah, Inflation Reduction Act Part, oh, you know, geez. two point But that was after Rocky three. Uh, you know, right. and, and I think the you know the Godfather Part four. Uh, you know, there was a there was an Inflation Reduction Act in some somewhere in there. I mean, if we're talking trillions of dollars, <laughs> but it is crazy and, when you think about it. We're all laughing, but it's why we're so screwed up today. Right. I mean, we increased the M2 money supply bolt from $15 trillion to $22 trillion in about 16 or 18 months. No, it's not It's not sound economic theory. And Yoda you, Yellen said inflation's <laughs> going to be transitory. Yoda. I mean, that's who she looks like and sounds a little bit like Yoda. Um, I mean, Yoda Yellen said it's going to be transitory inflation. I'm going like, I am an esteemed graduate from the Hannah Public <laughs> Economics Institute. It's not going to be transitory, Yoda. It's not going to be transitory. And now we're talking about disinflation. And a lot of people are confusing disinflation with deflation. Deflation means things are getting less expensive. Disinflation means they're getting more expensive, just a little bit slower than they previously were. I just think Bolton nailed it. I mean, I think the reason Trump's getting a pass on inflation is because Biden's the president. He's the guy in the Oval Office. He's the guy that needs to fix this. And he'll be blamed in November um, for, you know, whatever the economy is. And, and you probably get too much blame when it's good right. and probably too much blame when it's when it's bad. The simple question is every four years, the president, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And if, if when Biden's not going to want to ask that question, but if he does, everybody's like, well, no, of course not. <laughs> I was better off when the guy running against you was in office. So it's it should be a slam dunk. I mean, there's a lot of people who will never vote for Trump just because of the ban. That's I think what Biden. That's the that's the only kind of 
the only way he can thread the needle right now. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Huey Lewis bumper, right? Yeah. Huey Lewis yeah, and the news. There. I think he's going deaf. Am I right? Yeah. I but think he's got some was, serious hearing oh, issues. He had to cancel some tours, I think, last year or the year before because he was having hearing issues. Yeah. I was always um, a big fan. Oh, yeah, I am a big fan of Huey Lewis. Music of the 80s, Rev. Yep. So, Bolt, let's play out this. You ready? Now, when you All do right. it, because you're an esteemed academic. When I do it, I'm a troublemaker on the radio. When you do it, you're an esteemed academic, um, you know, exercising his, you know, his academic credentials in some hypothetical argument or debate. There are some out there that believe that they are, there is nothing the never-Trumpers won't do to keep him off yeah. the ballot. <laughs> Um, we know there's indictments. We know there are eventual trials. We don't have any idea if there are convictions. And, 14th Amendment. And how, yeah, and how significant the, the 14th Amendment. Is there any precedent here? Has there ever been this much organization <laughs> trying to keep someone no, from is, from becoming president? That's It's the common theme, right? It's, there's With President Trump, there's all these firsts. Never happened before, never even contemplated before. But, I mean, we've had some crazy political times in our country's history. There's nothing to compare to this? Nothing. (laughs) Not that one side so despised and so reviled the guy that they were so afraid of him, that they were willing to try and keep him off of the ballot. They're afraid of him. I mean, I like the guy. They disliked Andrew Jackson. We're going to try and beat him the old-fashioned way, just beat him at the ballot box. And they couldn't do that. They talked about impeaching him, but that's, that's a story for another day now this is this is again just another new precedent that we're having and then who knows i hope this doesn't become the norm in american politics after this but again we're just we're, we're reinventing the wheel with president trump so when you say that what's the danger in not allowing the will of the people I think to be the priority of our system of electing someone president i i think that's the the doomsday scenario what maybe Keeps a lot of us up at night. I mean, that's very serious. I mean, we joke around. We're having fun with the Buffalo Bills and Trump. But, I mean, when you go to that point, I mean, that's a very serious issue um, that is in play. That if, right, if some way there was some mechanism or if the Supreme Court interceded and said that, no, based on our interpretation, our ruling, President Trump cannot be considered, cannot run for president in 2024, I think a lot of millions of Americans, this, this is this is our guy. This is the guy that we support. Now you're telling us that we we don't have the right to vote for this individual who hasn't been convicted in a criminal court, who's been impeached twice, but was not, but was acquitted on both occasions. And now nine unelected men and women are saying, no, 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 this is the guy. I, I hate to say it, but I think there would be a lot of... Uh, Stomach churning, hand wringing, and perhaps, perhaps even violence. If the Supreme, have, especially if they did it in the fall, they did it in October, a couple of weeks before the election. God, that would be just awful for the country. Do you suspect that the courts take that into account? I mean, I, I know their job is to apply justice, yeah. and their job is to be, you know, the blindfolded lady of justice, saying due process under the law and innocent until proven guilty. But there's got to be some politics involved in that. I mean, the Roberts Court has desired to be somewhat apolitical. I mean, they've succeeded on some levels and others they've not. But but you're not going to convince me the Roberts Court is going to be apolitical when making that sort of determination. I think the the legacy of Roberts, he's all about maintaining the the integrity of the court. And this is, if you look back to the Obamacare ruling, the 
And so how Roberts sided with the majority, because I think he was afraid that if we struck this down, this would be bad. You know, it might be open season on the court. And I think Roberts is, if there's a way out, he's going to punt. He's going to find a way. If he's got to make a ruling, I'm sure he'll twist some arms, hopefully to get it to six to three, seven, maybe unanimous if he can. Uh, I, I can't imagine that they're going to exclude him some way. But, you know, you, you never know. Politics sometimes, judges can make, make some rulings that surprise us from time to time. This isn't what Roberts signed up for. Well, Roberts a good guy, right? He's, he's from Buffalo, New York. Is he really? So he was born in Buffalo, left uh, as a young boy. So we'll, we'll still claim him as one of our own. But I can't, I can't imagine that this is what he— If his hand is forced, if he's got to do it, I think he finds a way just to— I think he—I mean, he, he started off in the rig. He's There's some politics with John Roberts, and I think he kind of knows which way the winds are blowing. And so he's going to find a way for the court to save him, and he's not going to have the court step in it. 843-661-0937 is our number. Got someone trying to call in, but I don't— <laughs> Um, I thought we had upgrades on our phone system, Rev. Is this a chance I can address this with you? Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, what's going on, Josh? You just sent me Dead a message. Dead Josh. <laughs> uh, well, they're coming through on the computer, but the actual phone, when I pick it up, it it won't connect. It's mm. showing, like, the names of the last few callers are just coming so up in place of So we're having a phone issue, are we, Josh? We are. Wow, wow. imagine mm-hmm. that. Imagine that. We had an army of... Of um, now, of we experts were, over yeah, here. Yeah, we've got that fixed. I was about to see if this is the might be our equipment. I don't know. Yeah, we had an army of experts over a week or so <laughs> ago, guaranteeing that we would not have any more trouble uh-huh. with the phone system. I mean, uh-huh. since this is a call-in radio show, uh, you know, may, may, maybe Chase Elliott runs on the track at Daytona. <laughs> maybe the car doesn't work. He just gets out and runs on foot, you know, hoping to keep up with the other cars. Since it's a car race, I mean. Right. Why, why, why do you really need a <laughs> car? Need yeah. Bo, is there a controversial election? What would be the most controversial election post-revolution, pre-Civil War? Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that would be opinion, I, I would imagine. I mean, there's not, yeah. you know, that will, will, I mean, the courts decided this is the most controversial election. But what would have been a very controversial election in the early days of America? Yeah, you, you probably got to 1824, where Andrew Jackson gets the most popular votes, the most electoral, but he doesn't get a majority. And so they throw the election into the House of Representatives. And Jackson figured, I got the most popular, most electoral. I had votes in every part of the country. I'm a national hero. The people should, the House should pick me. Jackson doesn't politic or campaign. John Quincy Adams kind of swoops in uh, and steals the election. And Jackson says he's lost it through bargain and corruption. So that's the most, one of the most controversial. You fast forward to 1876, uh, and this is where you have Rutherford B. Hayes versus Samuel Tilden. Sam Tilden gets the most popular votes, uh, but there were 20 electoral votes that were in dispute. Uh, Three states, Florida, Louisiana, (laughs) South Carolina, excuse me, all sent in two sets of returns, uh, one for Hayes, one for Tilden. So Congress has to sort out this mess. They create a special commission, a 15-member commission, seven Democrats, seven Republicans, one independent, and the independent was a member of the Supreme Court. Right before the commission was about to vote, the independent, David Davis, member of the Supreme Court, resigns his position, and he was replaced by a Republican. And so in a series of eight to seven votes, all the disputed votes went to Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, who then became known as his fraudulency or Rutherford B. Hayes. <laughs> and in an unrelated story, right after that independent resigned, 
Uh, he bought a multi-million dollar, a luxurious mansion in his homestead of Illinois. I'm sure it was just a coincidence. <laughs> so how, how were the people informed back then? I mean, obviously the press, I mean, the media, yes. it would have been the newspapers. Yep. Did they report aggressively on these sorts of stories? Hey, every, every town, every, every politician, of course, had loyal newspapers to him. You know, the editor was basically on your payroll. You're only going to say nice things about I mean, me. But they were named the Republican gonna, Democrat. I mean, the newspapers actually named in, the, in the Republican Democrat. You, you or pretty Democrat. much knew. And again, if you if it wasn't in the title, if you read the lead editorial, you you could figure out which which candidate, which party this newspaper is supporting. And these newspaper editors were restrained only by the limits of their imagination. If they could think it, they would print it. Uh, once you finally get to the late 1840s with the telegraph, now finally you're getting the reports coming in uh, almost instantaneously. And so the election of 1876, uh, the Democrats were sort of celebrating early, and the Republicans were saying, ah, no, 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 not so fast. We've got so we got a few more cards, a few more tricks up our sleeve. And so in the for a political historian, it was it was fascinating, just some weird weird stuff and. I mean, who knows with President Trump, maybe we're, we're saving the best to last. But there was a gentleman's agreement. Yeah, you got me on that one. I mean, you, you know, the, yes. the Mark Zuckerberg Center for Tech and Civic Life. I mean, that would have been the one party reaches out to the other said, hey, you got me on that right, one. Well when played. I, I, yeah. I'll see you for you. No, they would shake. They would make friendly bets with one another. And they knew where the elections were kind of rigged and where they were uh, shenanigans were going on. And they sort of congratulate. I, I didn't see you. Uh, I didn't think you were going to do it in the third ward in Philadelphia. My, my hat's off to you. Uh, fool me once, good for you. You're not going to get me next time. But yeah, it was, it was a, a bit of gamesmanship, and they would they would congratulate one another on it. And I, I think it's unbelievable how naive the American people are into believing that we have free and fair elections. <laughs> yeah, okay. And they they would hold the returns back. <laughs> the deads would oftentimes vote. It's oh crap, we're a couple thousand votes behind. You know, get get some dead guys in New York City to vote. Well, yeah. then, that 2020 election, I hear that was the most <laughs> secure and honest election well, yeah, in history. Well, but that's, that's so naive and unbelievable. Dr. Bull, thank you very much for your time. Hey, thanks so much. Go Bills. We'll take you there. Go Bills. We'll take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Josh, you've been mighty quiet this morning. I'm not giving you an opportunity to express yourself regarding the Iowa caucus. One of the interesting points that I read, some of the entrance and exit polling, young voters by a larger percentage, supported Donald Trump. But that's kind of interesting to me. Younger voters um, who don't normally participate in caucuses voting for for Donald Trump. What do you make of that? I mean, you're a young voter. You're a Trump supporter. Um, you've been a Trump supporter. But what do you make of Trump gaining a little traction with young conservative-minded voters? I'm not really surprised at all. You know, Donald what Trump— What is the attraction, Josh? He's a real person. Okay. And I think the fact, you know, a lot of a lot of politicians think that, well, I need to be I need to be relatable in the sense of my, you know, I had humble upbringings and whatnot, just like you, your parents and how you are now. People don't really care about that anymore, especially people in my generation. I think they they want to look up to someone like you said, we're kind of looking for a man to to save us right now. People are looking. They want like they want someone like Trump. Josh just nailed it. Stop, stop, stop. You nailed it. They want someone to save us. That That's kind of an interesting, there's a, we're, we're drowning, Josh. The country is drowning. There's a mindset that, that we're, you know, uh, inflation, immigration. I mean, everything is out of control. Everything is chaotic. We're drowning in bad decisions. Somebody needs to save us. 
Nobody believes Joe Biden can save us. Nobody believes that Nikki Haley can save us. Nobody believes that Ron DeSantis can save us. Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, if he were a little more seasoned, maybe he could. That's the attraction. Uh, Josh, I think you nailed it. I don't think I could say it a thousand times and say it better. We're looking for someone to save us. We believe the country's heading to hell in a handbasket. Now, some don't. I mean, some believe the country is making strides when transgenderism is normalized and, and you know, abortions are more frequent. I mean, there, there are some people out there that believe this is a new and improved America. You and I don't buy that. We believe the country is drowning in bad decisions, fundamentally bad decisions, and we need somebody to stop this craziness. We need somebody to save us from those bad decisions, and we'll take Trump. We'll take all the baggage that come along. We'll take all the, 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 the nonsensical things he says at times, but we think this cat might be able to shake it up so much that we have a chance to save ourselves. Hell yeah. That, that, is, that, that is perfectly phrased. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I'm serious. I mean, I, I, I've tried to really search for the words to, to understand this. I mean, the, the word I used this morning is entrancement that people have with Trump. Reasonable people. I mean, you're talking about, see, I think that's the struggle the elites have. They know we're not all crazy. I mean, they know we're not all nuts. And we support Trump. And they're trying to, they understand the kooks that support Trump. They understand the kooks that support Rand Paul or the kooks that support Joe Biden. I mean, there are kooks that support candidates all over the place. I mean, that's, that's, that's always been the case. That will always be the case. That will never, ever change. But when you have practical, rational, logical thinking people on the Trump train, unapologetically on the Trump train, that's where they scratch their heads. That's where they're, they understand. They'll never tell Josh and Rev and I that, but that's where they go, what, what is it with that? I mean, Ken's not crazy. Rev's not crazy. Josh isn't crazy. But those son of a guns are 1,000% on Trump's train. Help me understand that. I mean, what's the psychology of that? And I think Josh nailed it. We believe the country is drowning in bad decisions, and somebody's got to save us from ourselves. And here's a strong man who says, I'll fix it. Give me a chance. I'll fix it. You may have to put up with a lot of craziness, but I'll fix it. And by the way, he now has a record. You know, he had things running pretty good. Back before the pre-COVID, pre-COVID, yeah, before. pre-COVID, the greatest economy man has ever known. So I mean, he can just point to that. He said, "Hey, we were, we were, a lot of people think that we were in the right place. We were going the right direction. We didn't have the wars. We weren't sending all the money. The economy, the American economy, was doing well. People were, you know, people had work. They had jobs. We set up for success for many, many, many Americans. That, that's that's an interesting take, and I think it is one hundred percent accurate. Let's go to the phone, David in the PD." Good morning. You're on. Yeah. Hey, good for Trump. He shattered that uh, Iowa caucus, whatever that Bob Dole stat was. Uh, so we don't have to worry about that no more. And Bob Dole is one of the heroes for the Democrats because as a VP candidate, he lost to Carter. And the presidential candidate, he lost to Bill Clinton. So they kind of like him. They like to use him. Somebody sets up Mount Calvin Coolidge. Uh, well, Calvin, I think he was from Vermont, uh, but he had a. Uh, Quote, uh, chief business of America is business. 
And where are these guys going to head to now? To the neighbor of Vermont and Hampshire. And what was the people talking about? The white people. Well, the white people in New Hampshire, they're not necessarily evangelical Christians, but there's a whole bunch of white people. And I would characterize them as quaint, quirky, and quasi-Canadian. Uh, these folks going to be more of a secular socialist type people than what you saw there in Iowa. And if you look at, uh, I guess, can I ask you a question? Is, is, can the Democrats and independents vote in this thing in New Hampshire? They can. It's an open primary. Okay. Well, I'm telling you, um, that's why Nikki's going after this, because these folks, I mean, I like them. You know, I've met many of them. Uh, they, uh, they, they like to be different. I mean, they're contrarian. And they have this concept, they call it live free or die. There's two ways to look at live free or die. That free might mean freedom, or it could mean, hey, if I don't have free health care, I will die. So that's the socialist mindset. So they're a very strange mix up there. And you have people, apparently they don't have state taxes or something. It's a bunch of people from Massachusetts, these places that Boston, they move up there. They bring their values there, too. And um you know, that, that's such hypocrisy, you know, and, and the fact that, okay, uh, we're, we like to tax people, but we'll move somewhere that don't tax them money. So they're kind of like the Florida of the Northeast. But I'll leave you at this, man. Bad thing about them, I call them the new economy. Everything that's focused there is either on government, universities, or health care. I think their biggest manufacturer is Timberland Boots or something like that. I guess they trying to get on the legacy of being some kind of lumberjack up there. But these guys, I mean, this is not really uh, the United States. This is a little – they are quirky and quaint, and they're quasi-Canadian. But Nikki probably will do pretty well up there. You'll have a good day. She'll do be- – thank you, David. She'll do better there than Iowa. And if you listen to John Sununo very often at some of these rallies, he said if everybody votes that can, we can win. I mean, he's talking about independents and Democrats. I mean, if Democrats don't have a primary, why not cross over and vote in the Republican uh, primary? I mean, that's Sununo. And, and in all honesty, if Sununu were in South Carolina, he'd be a moderate Democrat. I mean, he'd be a Vincent Shaheen, who was a very moderate uh, rural Democrat. Um, no problem with that. I mean, you are what you are. You, you have a right to be what you, what you choose to be. But I looked at the latest aggregate in real clear politics. New Hampshire, Trump's at 43. Haley's at 29. Um, I mean, you know, what, what, where do we go after that? Uh, Christie's at 11. You've got to believe some of the Christie vote will go to Haley. I mean, you know, the, the latest poll I saw this morning has it about a seven-point margin. I mean, I don't have any idea what a, a effect or impact Iowa has on New Hampshire. Um, Iowa would be an extreme example of heavy white evangelical voters in a Republican primary. New Hampshire would probably be an example of uh, moderation and independence and less rigidly conservative. I mean, I, you know, and, and I, I get it. Here's what I'm saying. If you polled Republicans in New Hampshire on abortion, you'd get a very different answer than if you poll Republicans in Iowa on abortion. I mean, it's um, there's great diversity in those two states. And then you go to Nevada and then you come um, to South Carolina. I still believe. The critical decision as we speak is Ron DeSantis. I think DeSantis has a lot to stew on.
between now and the weekend. I mean, he doesn't have to get out today, but I think he's got to calculate, does he have an interest in running in 2028? I mean, if not, he can do something different. But if he does have an interest in being relevant at the national stage or on the national stage, post-Florida governorship and 2028 election cycle, he's got to decide now. Because if you think about it, Rev, it's easy to say, well, we're four years away from that. No, we're two years away from people seriously considering whether to run or not. I mean, you don't wake up in January of 2024 or 2028 and say, wow, be a lot of fun to run for president. I mean, you start thinking about that two years in advance. So you're not talking about 2028 for DeSantis. You're talking about 2026. So he's got a lot to stew on and um, and think about as he makes a decision about the inevitability of not being the nominee. He's not going to be the nominee. Is there a deal to be made with Trump? I don't have any idea. What does DeSantis want for uh, – what does Trump want? I mean, that, nobody but Trump and DeSantis and their inner circle will ever know that. Um, but he's got to make a call. I think Nikki Haley's already made the call. She is the darling of the establishment. And that's not going to win her the primary, and I think it neuters her from ever running for president again. I just, you can't deny the reality. You know what the Iowa caucuses, or what the Iowa caucus shows us, Rev? The voters are exactly where we thought they were. They're anti-establishment. They're anti-neocon. They're anti-globalist. They're anti-immigration, not anti-immigration, anti-illegal immigration. Pro-securing the border is what they're for. But that's where the voters are. And Haley's stances are inconsistent with where the voters are. Why? Because the voters have an asymmetrical relationship with the donors. And Haley is the donors, darling. So Haley can't obligate herself to the voters when she's fully funded by mostly independent and moderate Republicans, moderate Democrat donors. That's not where the base is. And the only way to win a primary in the Republican Party today is to be an America Firster. Now, there are different iterations of America First, but if you are an establishment darling or a product of the establishment, <laughs> you're not going to be successful in winning states. You, you may have a chance in New Hampshire. You may have a chance well, in the Northeast Quadrant. I mean, in the Northeast part of the, of the country, that would probably play far better than it does everywhere else. But you go to the Midwest, you go to the Rust Belt, you go to the Southeast, you go to the Deep South, I mean, you're going to get trounced because that's not where the base is. And that's who you count on in, in primaries. Let's go to the phone. Roger in Pamplico. Good morning. Good morning, fellas. Uh, bear with me just a few minutes because I got three scenarios here. Uh, and I hate to throw cold water on uh, your optimism this morning. But uh, first of all, if the Democrats can't get Trump out of the out of the election through the court. That's their first priority. If that doesn't happen, we're not going to have a Trump versus Biden election. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And what I'm saying is not original. It's not unique from me or anybody else. But if Trump survives that and he's the nominee, which I think he will unless the courts come in, um, then you get to the convention, and the convention is when you formally nominate a candidate. We get to the convention, and the polls are the same. Trump's going to beat Biden. 
you're going to have is an old traditional convention, backroom politics, where they're going to convince the guy who really doesn't know whether he's running for president or senate or town council. I mean, he doesn't know anyhow. You're going to convince him to get out. You're going to get a Gavin Newsom in there who's a five-star liberal, but at the same time, he he doesn't have dementia. You know, he, he's very articulate. He's a five-star liberal, which takes or which enthuses the Democratic base. It also takes away the dementia issue from the independent voters, and it becomes a real election then, and that's what is you know really scary. And the third scenario, I'm going to leave open-ended because I'm not going down that road, but. Uh, I, I just hate to throw water on it, folks, but if you think Trump is ever getting near the Oval Office again, if you think that's going to be allowed to happen, you're fooling yourself. They're never – this guy is never going to be allowed to be president. <laughs> that's just it. He's never going to be allowed to occupy the White House again. So, you know, forget that. Like you say, forget that a lot of times. Forget that. It ain't happened. <laughs> Thank you, Roger. Appreciate that. See, that's the most interesting debate to have because there are a large number. I mean, Roger said none of this is original. I mean, all this has been regurgitated in some way, shape, or form. To me, the most extreme scenario is the last that Roger touched on. I mean, I think it's reasonable to believe that the Democrats get to the convention and they realize that, you know, their guy is so impaired, he can't beat Trump despite all Trump's baggage and negatives. Some of the... um. Some of the country bumpkins in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, Nevada and Arizona and Georgia, I mean, they're going to vote for Donald Trump because life was better, to Rev's point, when Trump was, was the president. That's a reasonable political scenario, right? I mean, the party has a right to make that decision uh, collectively. I mean, they're, they're, they're delegates, they're electors, they're, 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 they're donors, they're voters, they're leadership. I mean, everybody gets in that in that conversation and they hash out, okay, Biden can't beat Trump. I mean, there's no way for Biden to rally. I mean, I don't think anybody's expecting Biden to rally. I mean, do we believe that Biden's going to take a magic pill tonight and, and, and stop with the dementia and the disorient? I mean, he, he, the guy doesn't know. I mean, I think Roger nailed it. He doesn't know if he's president, dog catcher, city council member, mayor of, of Sumter. He doesn't have any idea. And he's got this, this little play run. You know, I think uh-huh. that's, that's scary. I mean, that, when I watch that, that's scary. Because that's somebody telling an old man, hey, people don't think you're up for this. Do something to convince them you are. I mean, that's a puppet. People don't think you're up for this. Convince them you are, honey. I think it's Jill. You know, I think Jill's behind that. Um, so he, so he kind of this weird trot that he does. <laughs> it's not fooling anybody. I mean, nobody's buying any of that unless you're an MSNBC. It's you know. sad. Well, it's I mean, just, it's, it's very sad. sad. It's elder abuse is what it is. But I think Roger introduced the most interesting dynamic that, that we can debate. And, and Roger didn't say, I know what will happen. But, but what if Trump is the nominee and the Democrats can't convince Biden not to run? And it looks like Trump's going to beat Biden. What happens then? I mean, that's when you put everything on the table because I don't disagree with Roger. There is a, there's a, there's a pseudo structure out there somewhere that have already played 
every scenario imaginable out to keep Trump from being in the White House. And everything's fair game and everything's on the table. And I mean, Breeze touched on the most radical Tucker has talked about this. I mean, Tucker asked Carl, I mean, Tucker Carlson asked Donald Trump point blank, do you fear for your life? I mean, that that's the most radical proposition to put out there as an alternate scenario, but who knows? You, you got to play all of these scenarios out, no matter how extreme or not they may be. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937. Everybody has an opinion until they vote. And, and the voting is, or the caucusing in this case, gives you a, um, I don't know, a better understanding of where the race is. My analysis is Trump won. The weather came in second. DeSantis came in third. And Haley came in in fourth. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso, I think, is still in Iowa. And he's with us this morning. Jeff, good morning. How are you? Hey, doing well, guys. Morning. Yeah, former President Donald Trump securing control of the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. A huge win here in Iowa last night, grabbing 51% of the vote. Uh, in his statewide caucus turnout, that despite the ice-covered roads, it's so cold here that the ice and snow are still on the roads. Any roadway, all roadways, ice systems, they're all littered with abandoned vehicles. Uh, you know, sub-zero temperatures didn't stop anybody. I was at a caucus site in Dallas County, which is just west of Des Moines, kind of a more moderate county. This is, this is one of those counties where if Trump was going to show any weakness, it would have happened here didn't happen last night. 200 people showed up at the caucus that I was at. It encompasses three precincts. Uh, many of the folks that turned up there, older folks. I saw a lot of walkers. This weather didn't stop anybody. Jeff, did it go? I mean, I think Trump won every county except Johnson County, and Nikki Haley won uh, one from there. Vivek Ramaswamy suspended his campaign. Is that kind of the takeaway? Ramaswamy no longer a candidate. Three will go to New Hampshire. I know um, – Ron DeSantis, I just got a text, Ron DeSantis will be at the South Carolina State House today addressing the General Assembly, but it's down to three now, right? Uh, it is, yeah. Well, I mean, Asa Hutchinson, I, I think, is still in, but uh, whatever. Uh, anyway, so um, the the uh, a couple of things there. Yeah, 98 of 99 counties, uh, the, the one point, I think that's probably called a gimme uh, with, with, with Trump's turnout last night. Uh, we heard from Vivek Ramaswamy this morning saying that he's going to actually be joining the Trump campaign uh, on the Trump trail uh, in, in the days ahead. So uh, this race really was always about second place. Who's going to win second place? And it really matters because of the donors. Uh, when that money dries up, the campaign is over. So we'll see going forward what happens. But look, I mean, Ron DeSantis between Ron DeSantis and Haley, they spent over $70 million for the state of, of Iowa. Trump spent about $18 million. Uh, DeSantis had an amazing ground game here. He did do the full grass lay, the, the, you know, the, the 99 county visits uh, named after Senator Chuck Grassley here. And so um, he really put the time and, and effort in, and he got rewarded because Iowans, they love the handshakes. They, they love the kissing babies, the, the FaceTime with the man or woman who could be the leader of the free world. They appreciate that. So uh, we'll see how it translates over to New Hampshire, then to South Carolina, uh, where, where, again, Trump is leading both Haley and DeSantis by double digits. It's going to be all about the donors moving forward. 
Well explained. Jeff, thank you for your time. I would say stay warm, but I know that's impossible. Just um, <laughs> just get out, of, get out of Iowa as soon as you can, I guess, would be the strategy Thanks, moving forward. Thank you. Jeff Manasso in Iowa. Um, but it's, it's, it's not a three-person race. I mean, I understand the formality of elections. You go to New Hampshire. You, I mean, you know, DeSantis comes to South Carolina. I mean, you play it out. Uh, you know, if you're a donor, why not give money to a cancer institute? I mean, if you got enough money to stroke a big check to a candidate, I mean, I get principle, and, and I admire people for principle, but, but right now giving to Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley is living proof that some people have more money than they have since. I mean, there's no return on that, on that investment. I mean, you can pat yourself on the back and say, I did everything I could to stop this, you know, this, this anti-democratic Republican nominee. I mean, I understand there's some out there um, that, that fundamentally believe that, but I, you know, instead of giving a hundred thousand to a super PAC helping Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley decide who's going to be in second place, why not give it to a cancer Institute or a children's school or some homeless, homeless shelter. That would be money much uh, better spent. We, we, we've kind of, stumbled on something here and and i'll give josh credit i mean it's it's credit where where credit's due i mean i've i've I've, um i've circled around that answer a hundred times i've just never been able to nail it i think josh nailed it i think he absolutely um nailed it he didn't get anything for it except a a friendly pat on the back but um i told rev a story josh um i was a big well i mean i've always been a big sports fan and you know Nearly everything in my life I equate to some sports uh, story or some Bruce Springsteen song. Um, yes, but, but you do. In the book, I mean, there's a there's an autobiography about Larry Bird written by, and I can't. It might be Jim Ryan. I mean, anyway, it's his last name's Ryan. He was a writer for the Boston Globe. He covered the Celtics. He would have been in the day their beat reporter, and that was a big deal. I mean, the Globe covered the Celtics. The the, the Times cover the Knicks and Yankee. You know what I mean? I mean, you, you got this embedded reporter, and he travels with a team. He's almost one of the guys. Um, he gets the scoop on who can play and who can't play and why the Celtics are struggling, why they, why they aren't struggling. But, Josh, I think it goes to your point. And Paul Ryan in the book Drive, because he said Larry was the most driven person that I'd ever been around. Um, Larry Bird famously said, what I lack in leaping ability I make up for in my lack of quickness. Um, think about that for a second. <laughs> That's kind of a backhanded. Well, anyway, um, they played a West Coast swing. The Celtics did. They left the East Coast. They went out and played the Portland Trailblazers, the Phoenix Suns, the L.A. Lakers, the Sacramento Kings. And I think they were coming back to San Antonio to conclude that swing, coming back to Boston. And they played like four games in five days, and they're talking about dead legs and tired. And, you know, KC Jones was the coach. And he called a practice early that morning, had a game that night. And um, and KC Jones sensed the mumbling and the complaining and the, you know, oh, I'm tired, man. I mean, you know, I don't feel like practicing and dead legs and I'm tired. Anyway, anyway, KC kind of uh, a player's coach. KC looked at the uh, the 15 men on the roster and he said, okay, you don't want to practice? Somebody make one from half court and we'll call it off. And nobody moved. Danny Ainge didn't move. Great player. Dennis Johnson didn't move. Great player. Cornbread Maxwell didn't move. Great player. Robert Parrish didn't move. Kevin McHale didn't move. They all kind of looked at Larry. <laughs> 
And Larry Bird got up, grabbed the ball, shot it from half court, and about 1.9 seconds later, 15 well-to-do, taller-than-average men had something they treasured and valued. That's called free time. That's the strong man, Josh. I mean, that's the Danny Ainge has a better chance of making a half-court shot than I do. Dennis Johnson has a better chance of making a half-court shot than I do. Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale were all pros. Bill Walton was one of the greatest centers ever lived before he had injuries. But they knew that Larry was a strong man. They knew that Larry had a chance to fix their problem. And their problem was tired and not wanting to practice and having a game later that evening. And they all look to the strong man. I have confidence in my ability. But I got more confidence than Larry. <laughs> and if somebody's going to shoot this half-court shot, I wanted to be that guy. And um, and obviously, Larry embraced it. You know, Larry didn't say, hey, man, I, I don't feel so good. Uh, you know, I don't like the way this gym looks. Uh, that shot's from half-court. I don't want to be the guy to make everybody practice. No, Larry stood up and said, give me the ball. And I think Trump does that. Give me the ball. Give me the ball. And, and I, I do think in the weirdest way imaginable, we're almost, once again, my word, entranced by the guy that's willing to take the ball and fight the gallant fight, despite what's thrown his way. And, and I said it, I'll say it again. The guys that have tried, well, I mean, the, the, the ladies and men that have tried to destroy Donald Trump are the reason he is more relevant today than he's ever been in American politics. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence, good morning. Hey, good morning. It's uh, it's nice to see you're up on the uh, Celtics of the '80s. I mean, that was that was the heyday. It was great. Uh, the Lakers so, and Celtics uh, were one of the greatest yeah. sports rivalries ever. And and then Jordan came along at the right time. He had the bad boys. That was basketball's heyday. Like uh, uh, so, uh, I I you know grew up in New England. So um, it was it was uh, something to behold. Um, it's a far cry from today, where they decide to take nights off all the time. <laughs> so, you're right you're um, all right it yeah uh so um i, I do want to you know you you talked about why would you in uh why would you give to a pack for nikki haley i mean this thing's over and done with it's set and go, keeping with the sports theme you know what hedging your bets are i do right so that they should should suspend the primaries on the Republican side? No, no, I'm not, I'm not for that. No, no, no. I right. mean, I'm not, right. not. Nikki has a right to continue running. DeSantis has a right to continue running. I'm not calling for suspending anything. Right. I just think you're wasting your money believing that something other than the inevitable is going to happen. Well, it, it is inevitable. And I will get, absolutely. Uh, nobody who thinks that Donald Trump is not going to win. The, everybody thinks Donald Trump is going to win the nomination and he will. Um, he will be the Republican nominee if he's qualified. Now, some of the exit polling, did you happen to catch Fox News' exit poll questions? I saw a lot of that, in yeah. Iowa? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what was the general feeling if Trump gets indicted? Like 21% said they would not support? Of Republicans. You're talking about convicted. He's been indicted. Right, right. Like, if he gets convicted. Yeah. You know, so there there's a purpose and a reason for them to keep running this race, even if it, it's foregone conclusion. Um, you know, and and again, if if it was an open primary on the Democrat side um, and Joe Biden, his age being what it is, 
absolutely keep running that race because when you get to the convention, you're going to have to figure out how to unscramble that egg. If your guy, the Democrat or Republican, isn't able. That's an, I mean, I, I don't dispute that theory. I mean, that, that's a theory out there worthy of considering. I don't think there's any chance that Trump gets convicted of something that disqualifies him from office before the election. Right. And, and, and I'm saying, like, um, he will go to trial before this. On some of the, the charges election, the he will. On, on some of the charges right. he will. Right. And, you know, if he is, you know, those court battles, uh, whether he can be on the ballot or not, go to the Supreme Court, which we all agree they should go to the Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court should have the final say on, you know, whether or not he's eligible to be kicked off of ballots in states. But if you get to a point where he becomes unviable before or after the convention, you you got you got to be ready to pivot. Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine that. I mean, I, I don't put much credence in that. I think 20 percent. I don't think there's a conviction out there that disqualifies him from being on the ballot. And I don't think him convict. I don't think Donald Trump convicted of a crime loses to either Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. Well, it's not about losing to Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. He's going to win the nomination on the Republican party. No, I'm saying he wins even if he's convicted of a crime. But I'm saying like, if you're telling me that uh, this book that is missing, okay. in the, in the documents case, that has all the Russian intel, and we've noticed a spike in human resources, um, CIA assets, foreign embedded assets, foreign nationals that are working for the U.S. government. We've seen that the, the CIA is losing operatives now at a higher rate than ever before. And there's a book missing in the documents case that has that info in it. You don't think that's disqualifying? No. You would still vote for him. Sure. You would vote. I mean, for I don't him buy the story. I mean, I know the story you're talking about. The story. I mean, the New York Times won't even touch the story. The Washington Post won't even touch the story. I mean, I think Salon and Vox and some of the other real liberal sites have done that. But I mean, I've read several places where the New York Times says they can't substantiate the information. Therefore, they're not running. Now, something could change tomorrow. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You see Chuck Grassley's asking for this. Well, I mean, and I agree with that. that You're you're asking me, do I believe that disqualifies Trump from being president? And and I'm saying no. And then you've asked me personally, I would still vote for Donald Trump. Okay. And, and not, not knowing the facts and not having the trial and not seeing the evidence. um, If just play hypotheticals, if there, nothing is there, your your position is you would still vote. But I don't know that if I can answer that, out. Jeb, because that that's that's a dynamic that you nor I know the impact or effect. But I, mean, I don't have any idea what could happen. All I can do is base my. I mean, I, I guess there is a scenario out there that that would convince Republicans that hey, man, this guy is too risky, and 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 that's your argument to maybe you know Haley or DeSantis. You know, benefit from that. Or Chip Roy. Well, I mean, I, I, I or, get that. I mean, I understand. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll put that on the table. I mean, I, I think that's on the table. I think it's a reach, but but I, yeah, I mean, I, I'll put that on the table. And I and I guess there is a reason to continue 
if that's the case. Jeff, we got to take a break, my man. I'm sorry. Uh, that's kind of an interesting debate, and and that's an angle. I mean, that you know that I think it plays into Rogers' point. I mean, I think it really plays into Rogers' point. If you think they're going to let Donald Trump become president, you're fooling yourself. Take a break. Back in a few. I want to say this real quick. Got a call, and we'll get there in two seconds. I want to say this. Jeff has a double standard. I have a double standard. It's okay for Jeff to have a double standard. It's okay for me to have a double standard. It's not okay for the DOJ to have a double standard. It's not okay for the FBI to have a double standard. It's not okay for the CIA to have a double standard. I am as double standardy as they come on certain things. Jeff is as double standardy as they come on certain things. Cool. Let's argue about it over the airways. But the DOJ, the FBI, the CIA, the intelligence community cannot have a double standard. And it's obvious they do. Let's go to the phone. Barry and Chirag. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, since we're going to go down that path, I'm going to change what I was going to say, Ken. Uh, did you, uh, great day for Donald Trump yesterday. Uh, did you happen to see the release to the blaze with the security footage from January 6th? Since William wants to call in every day, all day, five days a week, talk about January 6th. Did you happen to see it? I've seen a lot of that. I, I don't know that I've seen the blaze account, but I mean, there are other Gateway Pundit had some. Breitbart had a little bit. The American conservative. I mean, I've seen a lot of the video you're talking about. Okay, so let me let me. I'll, I'll set it up for you. Yesterday was released that Nancy Pelosi's security detail. Okay, her de, her special agent David Lazarus. He lied in the case of the Oath Keepers, the guys that got put in prison for seven to thirty years in prison. Okay, he lied and said Officer Dunn was being attacked by the Oath Keepers. He was in the Senate building when he said this happened. He said he saw it three to four times. Okay? I'm just going to paint a picture. The Oath Keepers were standing in front of Officer Dunn in case anybody came and they were protecting him. Officer Dunn was happy. You know, I'm not going to call him out. He got scared. He was hyperventilating. And this is the same Officer Dunn that was hired by CNN and the MSNBC, and now he's running for Congress, okay? His story was the Oath Keepers protected him in his first interview to the FBI. Second interview, he went back on it. So did Officer Lazar. Who told them to lie about the Oath Keepers? So these guys are sitting in federal prison for 7 to 30 years, okay, over a lie. The video doesn't lie. So... Williams, it wasn't an insurrection, and the Oath Keepers did not destroy anything. The video shows it. So we're being hoodwinked into going against each other when the government's running it. The government's running the ops, and I, I need everybody to understand this next year is going to be unreal. Prepare yourself. Prepare your mind for what's coming. I'm 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 almost to the point. They're not going to let Trump have it. They're not going to do it. So we have to pray against it. Be prepared for the false flags. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate that. The only, I mean, one of the interesting parts of Pelosi, she had her daughter, I think, and her daughter's a videographer, and her daughter is making some sort of documentary. But that's how afraid she was that they're making a documentary in the middle of the January sixth. You know, it, it'll be interesting. It's it, that's kind of a takeaway as well. I've known Roger all my life. 
I mean, Roger's a little bit more measured than I am. I mean, I say outlandish things, and I let my emotions uh, get the best of me. Roger would be kind of the opposite of that. And for him to say, I mean, you're fooling yourself if you believe that the powers to be are going to let Donald Trump anywhere near the Oval Office again. That's nonsense. That matters to me that he said that. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.